0: Ladies and gentlemen, to those among you who are easily frightened, we suggest you turn away now. To those of you who think they can take it, we say, welcome.
1: Damn Margot Kidder, I wanna get with ya. I know it sounds nuts, I don't care, I miss ya. Ever since the day that I first saw sisters, you own my heart, Miss Margot Kidder. Damn Margot Kidder, I wouldn't... I check all the time, but you ain't on Twitter. We can be pen pals, please send me a picture. I love you forever, Miss Marco Killer. I saw Amityville horror when I was a kid, as well as a teenager. Now I'm 26. No matter how old I get, or how many times I watch that movie i still lose my mind the way you look from the front way you look from behind the pigtails and the plaid skirt pause and rewind and when i got a dvd player i bought it again yo i still get upset when you get a backhand so i switch to black christmas to switch up the pace just to see that beautiful look on your face smoking cigarettes all smashed off schnapps it's <laughs> a <pair of laughs> around with cops <laughs> gets me off and yet pisses me off because when you get killed i shut that don't even know what happens No idea how it ends I really like you, Margot Kidder Like you more than a friend Dear Margot Kidder I wanna get with ya I know it sounds nuts I don't care, I miss you Ever since the day that I first saw sisters You own my heart. That was Dear
2: Margot Kidder by a band called Effect from their 2011 album Simply Dope. Available on iTunes. Richard, I thought that was just the perfect song for this episode. Uh, Welcome, everybody, to the Classic Horrors Club Podcast, Episode 19. Why is that a
3: perfect song, and who are you? (laughs) (laughs) Well, this is Richard Chamberlain from MonsterMovieKid.wordpress.com and kccinephile.com. And Margot Kidder is our topic this month. We had originally planned on doing a Dark Shadows episode, and then we lost Margot Kidder in the last month, and we were inspired, I believe it was Jonathan, wasn't it? Jonathan Arangela, our our listener and and good friend, who said, you know, Margot Kidder, and we thought, we could do that, we could do an episode on Margot Kidder. So we have picked three movies, horror-related films from her filmography. We're going to be covering the 1973 film Sisters, 1974 holiday film *Black Christmas*, <laughs> uh, a little bit of early Christmas in July, and uh, wrapping it up with the Amityville Horror from 1979. I'm going to be talking about her other films and and uh, you know her career as well. And we've got some great voicemails and such that are going to be providing some some input. So the Dark Shadows episode will happen. It's just going to be delayed. It'll be our July episode and we're still going to have uh, our good friend uh, Stephen Turk is going to be here to uh, share his thoughts on Night of the Dark Shadows and House, House of the Dark. Dark Shadows. Yes, I've seen those, and, and they kind of blended a little bit, and we'll talk about that next month. Yes. But this month, it's all
2: about Margot Kidder. Yes, and we'll leave the wrapping to that uh, group effect. I, I certainly won't be attempting any rap, and I don't think I even said who I was. I'm Jeff Owens from ClassicHorrors.club. So, let's welcome, uh, we've got a lot to get to, so I think we should get right to it, but I do want to welcome our new members that have joined our Facebook group, The Classic Horse Club Podcast, and those are Brock Redding, Randy Kohler, Tyrone Loke, and Bill Hook. Welcome. Thank you for joining the Facebook page, getting some new members. It's a nice little group.
3: And I believe Bill Hook is actually uh, an artist. He is the artist who did Creature from the Black Lagoon that's on uh, the wall there. So he's he's a local artist who uh, did a fantastic rendition of uh, the Creature from the Black Lagoon that I had signed last year at Monster Bash by Raku Browning. So that's uh, a very special piece in my collection. So uh, welcome to all the
2: new members. Also, I'll I'll mention, uh, besides joining that Facebook group, you can always email us. And yes, Christopher Page, we do have an email address. We're just using um, the one for my blog, classichorrors.club at gmail.com. And we also have a phone number, 616-649-2582. That's 616-649-CLUB. So there's no excuse not to get hold of us. Uh, I'm just thrilled that we're getting voicemails and getting people to participate. Some are watching the movies before, and they're sending in their thoughts for us to include, and some are just commenting and giving feedback. It's so, I, I. it's just, I think it's so awesome we're building this little community, a little community within the larger Monster Kid classic horror community.
3: Well, and you're posting the homework on the, uh, yep. the Facebook page. So, yeah, certainly if you join the Facebook page, you'll know for sure what we're, we're covering, and if there's last minute changes, you're going to find out there, uh, so you can adjust your viewing habits accordingly, and that's, uh, that's a fun way to kind of join along, and it's, it's fun, I think, to get this feedback before, because right. that way we can incorporate it in the same episode and get people's thoughts, and I think that's, that's something that's, uh, that's always fun to do. If we can kind of plan ahead, uh, it, it'll be a fun way for you to get even more involved in these episodes, which we love. Yes, and I have heard that the more the merrier. So, Indeed. So, yeah, we, we want to continue to add people, and, and uh, we're shooting for a, a monthly five-hour podcast full of at <laughs> right. least three hours of feedback. So, no, we're kidding. But yes. uh, all the feedback is very, very welcome and uh, much appreciated. So thank you for your support. Yes. Uh, We always have old
2: business This time, we'll keep it short There was only one thing from the last episode That we kind of left hanging uh, And that was the makeup artist On the Fly movies There is a a noticeable difference Between the Fly creature In the original Fly And in Return of the Fly I've learned since we posted that episode There are proponents for each As you know, mine was Return of the Fly is, is my favorite Uh, even though that's a little more cartoony and exaggerated. But hey, I like it. But we were wondering, you know, I guess I didn't really learn why there were differences, why they chose to do different makeups. But I did learn there were two makeup, different makeup artists. So in the 1958 version, it was a man named Ben Nye. He had 427 film credits. And The ones that stood out for me as far as being genre films were Day the Earth Stood Still and Planet of the Apes. He was, well, one of many, I'm sure, on Planet of the Apes. So that was the original, more subdued, conservative-type fly head, I guess. The second one from Return of the Fly was a man named Hal Learly, L-I-E-R-L-E-Y, uh he did not have as big a resume. He only made forty two films and no other genre films that I could see. so that kind of seems reversed to me because the that second one seems like s- someone that had a career in making monster heads or or <laughs> yeah. costumes so that but but no, so uh, anyway, that's it. Two men, Ben Nye and Hal Learly. all right, well, let's get right to some voicemail. We have uh, quite a bit, like I said. First one is from our friend Chris Franklin over at the Fire & Water Podcast. Uh, After he plays, or after I play this, uh, I want to comment on uh, what he's been doing lately. He's had some really exciting stuff on his various podcast projects. But let's see what he had to say about ours.
4: Hey, Richard and Jeff. It's Chris Franklin from the Fire & Water Podcast Network, Supermates, GLUcast, things like that. I just wanted to catch up on a few of your latest episodes. Great to see you guys on your own feed, and uh, I'll be honest, at first I I didn't find you, and I'm like, what do I have to put out on an episode? But that's my fault for not, you know, really checking. I was just kind of waiting for it to pop up and didn't. But I'm glad I found found you, and I've been listening to some of the episodes I missed. Uh, And actually, on the episode on Rondo Hatton, yeah, you guys brought up Batman several times. There is actually a Batman-Rondo Hatton connection. Uh, In the Batman animated series episode POV, there is a a gangster who is designed to look like rondo hatton uh that's an early episode of batman the animated series and it wasn't too long after the rocketeer came out so rondo hatton was on the minds of a lot of people uh doing art deco uh 30s 40s throwback type things at that time so that's cool uh just want to say i really enjoyed your episode on the fly and all the sequels um Actually, I have not seen Return of the Fly or Curse of the Fly, so I'm going to have to get on that. Uh, I saw the fly for the first time as an adult just a few years back, and I really thought it was great and held up. Of course, everybody knows the ending of it, uh, but I uh, really I really dug it, and I think I might even have Return of the Fly on the DVR. Uh, one thing I do have on my DVR is uh the dark shadows te- uh, the movies that were released in theaters and I've seen the first one and I enjoyed it as a kind of a super quick cliff notes version of the Barnabas saga uh the early Barnabas saga so uh, I have not seen uh Night of Dark Shadows yet that is on my DVR and I will definitely watch it before your episode comes out and I have been doing my Dark Shadows Marathon as well. I haven't done as well as some of the other folks that have let you know how they're doing. Uh, I watch about at least two episodes a night, but I'm up to the – I just got through the Dream Curse. I'm in the Adam storyline, and I just thankfully got through the Dream Curse. Wow. I heard that was the one that will test your limits, and it kind of did, honestly, but I'm loving it. Uh, uh, My wife's probably about ready to pull her hair out because we watch it every night, but it's been great, so thank you guys for inspiring me to do that. And I can't wait for another dark shadows episode of the great show. Uh, Keep up the great work. It's always a pleasure to listen to you guys. You guys are great. I talk to you later. Bye.
3: Thank you for that awesome voicemail. And I I wanted to comment on Batman, the animated series, the POV episode. I do remember that, that, that series is such an awesome series. Um, It's, my opinion there's there's been a I love Batman and there's a lot of good animated versions and there's some that aren't so good that's the best that's that's the the cream of the crop there and uh, that is gonna be coming out on blu-ray later this year it's I guarantee it'll be on my Christmas list um, it's been far too long since I've seen those episodes but POV is actually one that I remember and, and saw numerous times because those first probably Maybe 40 episodes of Batman, I think, I, I saw repeatedly quite a bit when they, they came on television in the 1990s. So, uh, uh, yeah, that's yeah, that's right. Rondo Hatton was in many people's minds, thanks to The Rocketeer, and that was that same time period.
2: And I just want to say, I, I've been so bad, Chris. I've wanted to leave you feedback for a long, long time. Of course, we talked about you because you and your wife, Cindy, uh, do do or did the supermates podcast and in october you do the house of Frankenstein, so that's right up our alley but you've recently sort of branched off and you're now doing the jlu cast which is a podcast devoted to the dc comics animated universe and i've really enjoyed the uh, i think you've done two episodes that i've heard really enjoyed it but you and rob kelly are also doing the superman movie minute and this is such a great podcast They are going through Superman the movie five minutes at a time, and they spend sometimes 30 minutes, sometimes an hour. They have a guest, and they just dissect Superman the movie, which is that's appropriate for us today, too, with Margot Kidder. But... They scored quite a coup lately because they've actually finished going through the movie and they're doing some bonus episodes. And their most recent episode, they actually scored an interview with Richard Donner. And uh, I just think that's awesome. I don't know how you guys pulled it off, but uh, you got to give us uh, the scoop sometime. That's just great. So check that all out on the Fire and Water Podcast Network.
3: Superman the Movie is one of those films that I just have very strong, vivid memories of. Seeing it at the Crest Theater in Wichita, it was that was an old school movie theater that had a balcony, it had a mezzanine floor. I had never been to a theater like that, because uh, by 78, most of those theaters had fallen into disrepair. But that one was still standing, and I remember Mom and Dad taking me, and, and the huge murals on the side, which actually, one of those murals is actually on my site. There's a picture of it that uh, I have fond memories of going to that theater and seeing Superman, the movie, and the opening moments of that, of course, the projector sound. It's just as a, I would have been, what, uh, gosh, what 11 when that came out. I remember just being in total awe of that. So for that forever sealed, that movie, is one of my favorites. It may have some flaws, but that experience just... I don't think it's ever been matched, to be honest with you. I've seen a lot of great movies and great theaters. But that one for me is, I think, the all-time best movie-going experience I had at the age of 11.
2: And I remember specifically when I saw it, too, it was the French Market Theater in Oklahoma City, and it was uh, not an old fancy theater like yours, but they had curtains that hung uh, and raised and lowered horizontally rather than parting in the middle and going across, and I remember them sort of draped at the bottom, slowly going up. I think the film probably even started while the curtains were still finishing going up, but I love that opening that uh, he starts you know black and white the kid reading the comic book and then turns real and color and the camera zooms out and then that music starts it's just uh, very memorable if you saw that as oh absolutely absolutely yeah. so so thanks again chris another chris called christopher page again another friend of ours that we've not spoken to in a while i'm a little behind on his podcast but he has two great podcasts uh, again we'll play his message and then kind of uh plug his recent work so here's christopher page
5: hello rich and jeff i just wanted to thank you for all you do if it were not for you i would have never learned of curse of the fly alice managed to stay off my radar is beyond me I never even heard of it till you talked about it the fly is a classic pure and simple for modern audiences maybe it's a little slow and lacks the every 10 minute gotchas of films that will come later but for the time a brilliant film that is a much a drama and thriller as it is a horror and science fiction. The films of this type need a new moniker, because it solidly sets all six legs in each of them. I recently re-watched Return of the Fly, since you two spoke of it and with some level of enjoyment. I did not remember liking this one. The bobble-headed fly running through the woods, barely able to make it its way through doors, was really all I could remember. So it turns out, there's a lot more to the film. Mostly, I think it's still a cheat. I imagine the conversation going a little like... How can we make a man into a fly again? Well, exactly the same way as before, but because it would be too much of a coincidence to accidentally combine the 2 we'll throw in a plot to steal the matter transporter plans by a ruthless, sadistic science thug. A scientist thug? Yep, a scientist thug. Well, it might have been something like that. Anyway, it's unfortunate for the scientist thug that combining the fly with Delambre not only turns him into a bobble-headed fly but also a brilliant detective who not only tracks down the crook, but has never seen or heard of by Philippe, accomplice. Now that is a film I really want to see. Philippe Delambre, Fly Detective. He's got the head of a fly and a nose for crime. While I didn't hate Return of the Fly, I still don't really care for it. It's fine, but skippable. Unless you're determined to be a completist. Now Curse of the Fly. Originally, after hearing your discussion, I thought the same thing you did, that this was some unrelated script that the fly mythos was shoehorned into. After watching, I have to disagree with that assessment. I think this is a worthy successor to the first two, a much more intelligent film than the second film, and returns to explore the darker tones of the first one. The conceit of the escaped mental patient in order to get the police looking in the right direction and thus forcing the hand of the Delambrés is the only unfortunate bit of script. It's trying to be clever but it feels clumsy. Setting that aside and moving on to the rest of the story, we have a tale of a scientist that is driven near mad to complete his family's multi-generational work, and his madness is infectious to at least one of his sons and to the other recognizes the sickness that it is. Henri's eventual undoing unwittingly at the hands of both his sons as they suffer from his madness in each their own particular way is a fantastic, dark, and poignant end to the story. This end of the experiments is only one of the many dark shades thrown over this film. Long story short, I thought Curse of the Fly was brilliant. Maybe an equal, and dare I say perhaps slightly superior to the original? Well, thank you for helping me discover this new favorite. At least until they make Philippe Delambre, Fly Detective. And keep on doing the great work you do at the clubhouse. Your friend, who is still going to the Monster Bash, Christopher. Thank you,
3: Christopher, for reminding us that you're still going to the Monster Bash. Uh, no, we're, we're uh, looking forward to hearing everyone's comments who are still going to the Monster Bash as we will stay here in Kansas City and watch a movie or two or three and commiserate. Um, in any case, Fly Detective. Yeah, that's that would be something I would... I'd be up for that. I mean, if we have a wolf cop, why not a fly detective? Seeing the starts of a new universe of films, <laughs> potentially. You know, it, you you may like the third movie better than we did, and that's that's, that's absolutely fine, because that's the one thing I love about the, the horror community in general, but the podcast community that we're a part of, is that you can have difference of opinions, and everyone is respectful of each other. And for those Facebook pages where they're not... I usually depart rather quickly. I, I think that appreciating everyone's different opinions is, is fantastic. And so while we didn't like the third one as much, you know, I could see what you're saying. You know, it's, it's certainly a return to the darker tones that were kind of present in the first film. So, uh, yeah, I, I think that uh, that your, your thoughts are, are valid. And thank you for, for leaving a voicemail. Yes, and please, please, please
2: call and give us a report from Monster Bash. Make us feel like we were there. Uh, I do want to mention the, the Time Shifters podcast, the one of the podcasts that Christopher does. I've got two episodes in the queue right now I haven't listened to. It's not always classic horror or horror films, but uh, a few weeks ago they covered Cave of the Living Dead from 1964, so that's an episode I'm definitely going to listen to. And then I don't, haven't even gotten into what the specific content is, but I believe their last week's episode is called From Book to Film, and I think they're going to talk about Films that came from books, and that's always an interesting topic to me. So I'm looking forward to that, and you all should check that out. That's the Time Shifters podcast. All right, and our last voicemail for now, although we'll have one later, is from our friend Steve Turek.
6: Hi, Jeff and Rich. This is Steve Turek calling, and again, you had a nice episode or good episode with The Fly. I enjoyed uh, you guys' critique for the three different movies. Um, One thing that dawned on me a few days after the podcast was the reason that in the second fly movie there might have been the big head fly was because they were talking about it during the movie about everything was coming back bigger like there was um uh, everything was uh, everything that they were doing or transporting or whatever was coming back bigger than it was more gigantic and maybe that was their excuse to nip they never said it for why the fly head was so much bigger than the first movie. That's the only thing I can come up with as to why one head was so much bigger than the other. Um, I still enjoyed the first fly head and the the special effects and the makeup for that one way better than anything that came in the other two movies.
2: Thanks, Steve. And we are going to hear more from you later if it seems like that call uh, ended abruptly. He uh, will provide some opinions of his on the three movies we talk about, and I'm going to save those and we'll play those later. You know, that's a good theory, Steve, but... You know, you may as well just admit the truth, they decided they wanted to have some better makeup in the second movie, so they made the big old fly bobblehead, like Christopher Page called it, and, and what a great success that was. I'm sorry, I just love that big flyhead. Let's get into our movies. Let's talk about the career of Margot Kidder. She was born on October 17th, 1948, in Yellowknife, the Northwest Territories of Canada, She wanted to be an actress since she was the age of nine, and that's when she saw Old Yeller. Uh, So as she grew up and became a late teenager, you know, that calling stuck, and she wanted to be an actress. But to do that, she had to pack up and move to L.A. or New York. She made her first movie at the age of 18. She didn't like L.A., though, so she went back to Toronto and uh, made her second movie there. She was a little leisurely, I guess, at making her first few movies, but... When she ran out of money, she learned that she pretty much needed to work nonstop. So finally, at 18, she borrowed enough money, she moved to L.A. permanently, and uh, she lived, as she called it, in a seedy apartment on Santa Monica Boulevard. Now, I'm getting some of this from the special features of the movies that we watched. I I tried to catch anything that had an interview with her or that anyone was talking about her. So uh, a lot of this uh, is her own words from her interviews which i just richard what's your feelings about margot kidder i mean her death really hit me hard because it's not that she was a favorite actress of mine but it's just that iconic role of lois lane and it's the fact that she went through some personal hard times later in her career which i think we'll talk about later but she came through that i I got to meet her at planet comic con she signed a a superman lobby card of mine and had a Nice conversation. I know she was politically active, but I think she also was sort of an advocate for mental health. After I, I remember some comments she made, but she was just the nicest lady. She's always been a little bit goofy to me, kind of a nut case, and I think that's represented in the roles that in in these movies that we're going to talk about. But it just made me so sad to hear that that she had passed.
3: Uh, it's it's always sad when someone has you know, kind of come out the other end um, after going through some some really bad times, and she had some tough times, and then to hear of, of someone's passing like this. So, um, you know, you're right, it, that iconic role of Lois Lane, again, tying into, for me, the, the greatest film experience I had. I mean, she is part of that, and just that Superman 1 and 2 are, are great you know, superhero films from a time that, that we didn't get superhero movies that often, which I think, to me, elevates them maybe higher on the list than they should be. But we just didn't get a lot of that. And that was big screen. You, you could believe a man could fly after seeing those movies. And the soundtrack and everything, it was just all part of, of a wonderful experience. You know, she was here for Planet Comic Con, and I did not get her autograph there I remember that particular year, I just I had a long list, and she wasn't as high up on the list, and I ran out of money. She was actually here as well in November at the Kansas City Comic Con. They brought in a lot of Superman uh, stars, right. and we opted not to attend. We talked about it, and neither one of us kind of felt inspired to go. And I kind of regret that now, because she would have been one of the autographs I would have gotten. And uh, I, I kind of regret not going now because that opportunity is gone. Uh, I don't know if she did a Q and A panel or not. That that convention didn't get a lot of a press, unfortunately. It's not the big one we have here in Kansas City. That's Planet Comic Con. But yeah, it, it it was it was surprising and shocking when when you hear of that. And these movies, uh, for me, Sisters was a first time viewing, whereas Black Christmas and Amityville were multiple time viewings for me although it had been a while since I'd seen Amityville. Black Christmas I saw just a few years ago, so it was still very vivid in my mind. You know, there's certainly some other films uh, of her career that I've seen that we'll talk about, and, and there's a few that I still want to see. The Peter Proud film that you've talked about uh, is certainly still on my list to, to catch. So uh, Sisters, though, was the first time viewing for me. I know we're getting ready to kind of talk about that, and it was, it was interesting to say the least. (laughs) And you know, I never really thought,
2: uh, this is going to sound bad, but uh, I never really thought she was that great an actress, if that makes sense. And that might be blasphemy. But watching these recently, and understanding a little bit about her real life, I think she played some version of herself in all of these movies. And there was just something really touching about watching her performances, and and I know probably why I thought because they're not they're not normal performances. Any other actress would have played it different. She brought her special quality to it, and it is different. I think. I mean, I don't know if I'm describing that very well, but I, let's just say I appreciate her a lot more now than I did perhaps through the years as I watched her movies, uh, and you know when she guest. Uh, Started didn't she? Yeah, she gets started on Smallville, and I think another TV show. You know that that's that's when I sort of you know redevelop my appreciation for her. So before we get to Sisters, just to run through a, a few things she did before that in that time between moving to LA from Canada and then making Sisters. What a, a stroke of good luck she had. Her first four projects, well not her first four, early four projects, she worked with Bo Bridges, James Garner, David Jansen, George Pappard. I mean, she really got some big name co-stars and it it wouldn't be till later in her career, I think, that she really was considered a leading lady. In fact, probably after Superman and Amityville Horror. But, you know, even back then, they were pairing her with some big stars of the time. She did some TV, James Garner, that was a Western show called Nichols. I don't remember that. Uh, She was actually in the pilot for O with David Jansen. I remember that. I don't remember the pilot. I remember the show O. and uh, Banachek with George Pappard. Then she made a couple more movies. Uh, She went to Ireland, made one with Gene Wilder called Quaxer Fortune Has a Cousin in the Bronx.
3: I've heard of that one. I had, I had forgot about it until I saw that
2: title, yeah. and I'm like, I've never seen it, so I have no idea. And then uh, an episode of The Mod Squad in there somewhere, but come to 1973 or you know, the months before that, she was living with a, a woman named Jennifer Salt, Jenny Salt, she called her in one of the special features, and I've always seen this name, it, she became a big producer Soon after, I guess, Sisters, she was in my favorite TV show of all time, Soap. She played Eunice Tate. And then she somehow got into producing. And she, I first saw her name, I think, on Nip Tuck. And so I know she's in with Ryan Murphy in that group because you can still see her name these days. She's a producer of American Horror Story. But uh, anyway, she was living with her. And apparently there was this group of, you know, her generation, young and upcoming. She had a lot of contact with big name well, what would become big-name directors, I think. Don't remember all of them. Spielberg was maybe one of them, but definitely one of them was Brian De Palma. And she got into a romantic relationship with him that I think lasted a couple years, and it was during this time that she made Sisters. So let's do our quick synopsis, and we're going to play a clip from Sisters, and then we will come back
3: and talk about it. In Sisters, Margot Kidder plays once-conjoined twins Danielle and Dominique. Danielle is a successful model whose life is turned upside down when Dominique visits for their birthday and becomes the suspect of a brutal murder.
0: It'll take me just about 10 minutes to get a search warrant. Now, while Spinetti here is going to the trouble of doing that, I shall naturally have to... Excuse
7: me. Excuse me. I I don't mean to offend you. Come in. But, you know, I see all the time on uh, the television show the scene of the evil criminal uh, and the policeman. And and the policeman knock on the door and the criminal, he asks about, you know, what you have asked me, the search warrant. But uh, you have not said to me, open in the name of the law. You have not said that. Now then, Miss... Danielle. Daniel
0: Breton. I'm Detective Kelly. This is Detective Spinetti. And... Uh, how do
7: you do?
0: This is Miss Collier, your neighbor from across the way.
7: Hello. How are you? Hello.
0: Uh, now, something very unusual occurred this morning. Seems that Miss Collier happened to glance out of her window and saw something which so shocked and disturbed her that she called the police department. I
8: saw a murder.
0: <sighs> Thank you, Miss Collier. Howdy, Miss Breton. I suppose you can see uh, Miss Collier's apartment from here.
8: I really don't know. You know very well you can.
7: Yes, there's my window and this is definitely
8: the right apartment. Uh,
7: Miss Collier, do you spend a lot of time watching my apartment? You
8: saw me. You know you did.
7: (laughs) If uh, I have seen you, then, then I would have pulled the shade and if I do that, I have to give up all my life to have the privacy.
8: She did draw the shade. Obviously, once she'd hidden the body, she felt safe. But it must be here somewhere. I can't believe that this is serious. He wrote, help, on this window in his own blood and I watched him write it. Eerie, he write that? Naturally, she washed it off. It's all so obvious. This girl is protecting someone. But the murderess is someone this girl knows. She was shorter and had a a twisted face and stringy hair and and was having a terrible fit of some kind.
0: Do you know someone who would fit that description, Miss Breton? No.
8: Good
7: God, I saw the knife. I saw her stab him.
0: Could somebody have gotten in here without your
7: knowledge? It would be uh, impossible. I was here all morning. What about the man that stayed over? I was quite alone. You see, I'm, I'm divorced from my husband and it's still, but uh, well, it's very personal, you know. But Miss Collier, many time at night I, I, I watch the television show and uh, I watch the horror film and it make me full of, of fear and, and I jump at every noise. I understand that when you live alone, it, it make you, it's very difficult, I understand that. What I saw
8: happen was real.
2: Richard, you said this was a first time viewing for you, watching Sisters? Yeah. I am the opposite. In fact, I, I found an old, old posting on my blog where I wrote about Sisters. I first saw it on HBO, and this was during the time that you didn't have video stores, you didn't have streaming, all of that. But I had two, my family had two things, HBO and a Betamax. And Sisters was one of the first movies I taped. And I watched that thing over and over and over. I love this movie. I love the style of Brian De Palma and how he uses the split screen and the Bernard Herman score. I just, I love this movie very much. What did you think of it? seeing it the first
3: time. I thought it was a really interesting film. A little bit of trivia uh, to kind of uh, just wrap up kind of what you were uh, talking about earlier, the friends that she knew and and that really was, I mean, her connection with Brian De Palma was really how she got the film and Jennifer Salt. What I thought was was cool is the way they got the part or they found out about it. It was a Christmas gift. Um, He put the script in in Christmas packages for them underneath the Christmas tree. And when they opened it up, there was the script huh. for this movie that they were going to star in together. Uh, that's that's kind of cool. Yeah, um, I didn't know that. Um, yeah, this movie, I've been aware of it for a while. And I, I, be- I think this was covered years ago on the B-movie cast. And uh, because it was a harder film to find a little bit, Criterion Collection had it on dvd but those are not cheap films and so um i I didn't have access to it and i've never seen it until now i'm not sure what i was expecting i i was expecting something a little less mainstream actually this this is although there's some definite quirky moments in the film it was a lot more of a a murder mystery more of a murder mystery than i thought I, i was expecting more horror i think and what I got was a, was a film that had a lot more style and class to it than I was expecting. Just because a film is, is released by Criterion Collection doesn't necessarily mean it, it's, it's an artful masterpiece. Artful or masterpiece, because or... they, they do release, the, they got a pretty eclectic release you know list of films if you look at them. I mean, they they kind of cover across the, the board. I was expecting something, I think, a little quirkier, a little more art house, horror art house film. And what I got was more of a mainstream thriller, hmm. which pleasantly surprised. I guess is what I should say. Um, and and uh, you know Brian De Palma, I have seen handful of his films. I, I can't say that I am a Brian De Palma fan. I don't follow his his films per se, but I have seen like Carrie, uh, The Fury, uh, Dressed to Kill a very long time ago, uh, and enjoyed the films that I have seen of his. That's interesting, you say that it was mainstream. I think at the time,
2: I think it had to be a little subversive. I mean it was if you think about some of the subject matter and the and it's very it's all very sordid and seedy.
3: I always got a little bit of a dirty feeling the last from it act for me took that turn. I didn't feel that way up to that point i I in, there were parts of it made me think of like a, a dirty hairy flick almost hmm. which. Admittedly, if you watch some of those early Dirty Harry films, I mean, there's a certain level of grime and seediness to the early Clint Eastwood Dirty Harry films. In fact, I just saw the last third of the very first Dirty Harry film, and that that killer in that uh, played by Andrew Robinson is he's he's just a a nasty little nut job <laughs> who's like when he steals the the bus and he's hitting the kids on the bus and. I mean, that kind of stuff you just wouldn't see in most films today. So yeah, there was a seediness towards the, the final act of this movie that when that part came on, that's kind of what I was expecting, but I was expecting it throughout the whole film. Huh. And what we got, in my opinion at least, the first two thirds was a more typical early 1970s cop murder mystery thriller, which you know was the style for that particular era. And I think that part was mainstream, but then the last act, it kind of goes off the rails yeah. and certainly leaves the mainstream at that point. Hmm.
2: Let's listen to what Steve Turek had to say. He left a voicemail. He has some really good comments that I think will spur some conversation.
6: Hello again, gentlemen, this time, uh, it's Steve Turek calling back after watching sister, the 1973 Brian the Palma movie with Margot Kidder and Jennifer salt and so on. And, um, I want to say, it's been a while since I've seen both Black Christmas and Sisters and um, the end of horror. It's been at least 20 years. But um, this one was a great one to revisit. I I, I really enjoy it a lot better than I think I did when I saw it when I was in my late teens. And uh, Brian De Palma did an excellent job of directing the film considering the budget that he had. And I loved his use of the split screen with them hiding the, um, evidence of the, in the murder and all that stuff, why, um, um, Jennifer Salt's character is waiting for everybody for the police to show up so she could take them over to it and stuff like that. And how they just miss the, um, um, Emil, Brennan, William Finley's character, you know, in the hallway. I thought it was just great. It was a great thing of suspense. Which which brings me up to an interesting question. I mean, and and I know everybody's opinions are different. Is this really a horror film or a suspense thriller? And in my opinion, in my judgment, and I know, like I said, everybody's is different. Is I think it is more as a suspense thriller than a horror film because at no time was I ever scared or whatever. I mean, there was. I mean, you knew when she was going to cut the one purse. Actually, you knew when she was going to cut each of them. was just a matter of when. You get the little jump. But, I mean, I wasn't really horrified or anything by it. Uh, so, uh, I mean, I guess you could say because she was assigned these twin and the surgery and the dream sequence, maybe that makes it nightmaric. I'm not sure. But, you know, everybody's opinion's different. And my, and I'm not going to say somebody's wrong with their opinion. I'm just saying if I was categorizing it in my film collection, I would put it in the suspense thriller section, and I definitely would end up getting this film um, in my own collection. I ended up getting all three of these films via Netflix. I'm old school, where I get the disc delivery because of where I live and stuff like that. I don't have high speed internet to stream things easily. Um, as for Margot Kidder, she did an excellent job um, playing Danielle slash Dominique um, through the movie. Uh, she did; it was a great character for. It was different than what you normally like we saw for Black Christmas where she was the free spirit in this one. <clears throat> she was playing more of a nice person until she had that switch, so to speak. I also like Jennifer Salt's character of Grace. And um, what can you say? The Hitchcockian references in this movie are just all over the place, When Grace is looking out the window and sees what's going on in the other apartment, like in Rear Window. Also, I did enjoy how they had the Peeping Tom show prior to that, so it was almost the whole time the voyeurism that was going on uh, was was a theme throughout the movie, because they had the candid camera type show, which led into um, um, Philip Wood and Danielle meeting each other, which led them to their date, and so on, and of course, I mean, I'd be remiss to say, like, I'm I'm trying to be butchering his first name, Lizel or Lizzle Wilson, Um, he did a, you know, the great job of being this 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 nice guy who just happens to be in the wrong place at the wrong time when um, those things happen. Um, but it was interesting how the voyeurism was carried through with her looking for the window and seeing it. And, of course, at the end with Charles Derning's character, Joseph Larch, watching, you know, from the telephone pole to see what's going to happen with the couch and so on. Which he's probably still hanging there now since that's how the movie ends. He might be there forever. I mean, maybe we should send him a message. He can come down at this point. And, uh, that, speaking of the cast, I mean, Charles Derning being in a, in, a, in a smaller role, um, Dolph Sweet, I mean, I was surprised to see him as Detective Kelly because I remember back him with him with Gimme a Break. So, I mean, I know that character and it, it dawned on me. Oh, that's the guy from Gimme a Break. And then Olympia Dukakis' character, when she was in the bakery, I kept looking at her saying, I know that face. I know that face. And I didn't realize it was her until I was looking up in the Wikipedia. And I was like, oh, my Lord, it's Olympia Dukakis. And I was like, I knew that that person was there. And it's it's, it's amazing how they have these people to fill out the cast, you know, playing these smaller parts. And I don't know what Brian De Palma did to get – Bernard Herman to do the score. I was just, I was just shocked when I saw that he was the composer and it's just amazing what he was able to get for what little money I'm sure that he was able to utilize. I'm sure he probably wanted more money to do different things, but it was just a very good movie. And I think if anybody likes this type of horror slash suspense thriller type film, it's definitely one to add to their collection and enjoy. All right. Got Amityville Horror coming up next. So, talk to you guys later.
3: Bye. Thank you, Stephen, for that uh, great voicemail kicking us off. And uh, I know we'll be hearing more for you, from you as the episode goes on. Yeah, the Hitchcockian comparison, that's, that's a good, good thought. Kind of goes with what I was saying. This movie is really not a straightforward horror film. It is a suspense thriller with some horrific elements thrown in, which is a description of many of Hitchcock films. I mean, outside of maybe psycho and the birds. I mean Hitchcock really didn't do straightforward horror, but he had some horrific moments in his films. And I think I'd be I'd be surprised and I've I've never read anything to support this, but I'm I'm willing to bet that Hitchcock was an inspiration for Brian De Palma, as he was for many directors, especially around this time period. And your comments on some of the cast, I wanna to touch on a few of those. Um you know, Charles Durning is a great character actor uh, he probably is still standing up on that pole. <laughs> I thought that was kind of a, a, a quirky but funny ending because he was adamant. He was going to find out who took that couch, and uh, he probably is still up there <laughs> Charles Durning, I think he's passed now, hasn't he? I think Charles Durning I think so, not passed, so long ago not too long ago. You know, so many great movies he's been in, Dog Day Afternoon I love him in Oh brother, where art thou? So uh, yeah, that's a very familiar face. I dolph sweet. I'm glad you mentioned that. Yes, 88 episodes of Give Me a Break. One of those sugary sweet sitcoms from the 80s. Even though he was, he was that was not his show. That was Nell Carter's show. Um, he died during the the filming of that series. He died after I think it was season four. And it kept going for a couple of seasons after that. And Nell Carter kind of taking on the role of not just being a mom, but now a father figure to the to the kids who were getting older by that point. But yeah, I remember Dolph Sweet as well. Olympia Dukakis was not somebody I recognized, but now that you mention it, yeah, that that's that's a, a fun little uh, mention. And I don't think you mentioned it, but I, I let's, let's mention Bernard Hughes. And if you did mention it, I didn't catch it, playing the character of Arthur McLennan. Of course, Bernard Hughes in The Lost Boys. Grandpa in The Lost Boys. He was also in the original Tron. Another character actor who popped in a, a lot of movies in the 70s and 80s and was usually playing kind of a grandfatherly, older-type character. I've never seen him in anything young, but I'm sure he had to have been in, you know young in the films at some point. And Bill Finley as Emile Breton. What a creepy-looking yeah, gosh. dude. And, and I was looking at his... his uh, filmography of course phantom of the paradise the Funhouse. house and then our favorite film eaten alive i should have recognized him from that you talk about watching a movie that you need to take a shower <laughs> or five after eaten alive is one of those so yeah he's a creepy little little guy in this film and and nasty character actually the, the villain of the piece in many ways so uh yeah, great cast and, and a pleasant surprise for me. I think I'm I'm right on board with everything that uh, Steve was talking about. Yeah, and I'll add
2: a couple comments. So, first of all, Steve, the more and more uh, we communicate, I think the more and more alike we are. You seem to have the same obsession I do with categorizing everything. And I know you've brought this up before, what does determine a monster if you're talking about a monster movie? You know, is is Norman Bates a monster? Well, you know that whole discussion. So I like you really want to categorize everything and I, I, I'm going to cheat and compromise. I call it a horror thriller. I think the horrific aspects are horrific enough that it does bring it slightly into the horror. Uh, I, I think it's not out of place there at all with the, in fact, it reminds me a little bit of a Jalo movie or uh, maybe even an early prototype of a slasher movie in, in a way. So but I definitely think there's, Horror in it. And Netflix, I'm with you. I I mean, I guess I have the best of both worlds. I do have high speed internet so can stream, but I still get a, a Netflix disc in the mail. Nothing wrong with that. Don't be ashamed of that at all. My only other comment about the cast is Lyle Wilson that you mentioned. I think it's probably Lyle. Not a whole lot of credits, but he was also in The Incredible Melting Man in 1977. That's something. (laughs)
3: <laughs> that is another movie. Have you ever seen that one? Oh, yeah. Yeah, that's another one where you just kind of feel a little bit grimy after watching it. Mean, that's yeah, that the epitome of 1970s grindhouse. Yeah. I want
2: to make just a couple more references that Margot Kidder herself made about this movie. And her relationship with Brian De Palma, and I'm sure during the making of the movie, she said that's where she learned that horror has to have humor. And I think this movie represents that. There's definitely I mean, we talked about Charles Derning at the end, it's it's definitely got its humor inserted throughout, some of it pretty dark. In one of the, the special features, and it it wasn't Sisters, but one of the others she did talk about her early career and she seemed to have the impression that uh she was an early scream queen and that she made a lot of horror movies and really besides the three we're talking about in reincarnation of Peter Proud, I she didn't really make any other Not horror really, movies. So her, her memory it was a much larger, I think, part of her career than it really turned out to be. Although they were, you know, early in her career, so I, I definitely agree, I suppose, that early on she could have been considered a scream queen. She also doesn't really like horror movies. They were a way for her to to make a buck, you know. She had to to work. And uh, she said that horror films make her laugh. When she was making Black Christmas, Bob Clark, the director, told her she needed to go see The Exorcist. So she didn't remember if it was Toronto or New York, but she actually went to see The Exorcist, and she was with an audience that just laughed all the way through it. She found it extremely funny and not scary at
3: all. I read the same thing about the Amityville Horror. They were trying to get her to jump when the right. eyes appear in the window, and, and everything they did just kept making her laugh. <laughs>
2: right.
3: So she's one of those people that, yeah, is just not into horror films and just finds them comical, which, uh, as a director, that when you're making a horror film or a suspense film, had to have been frustrating to try to get that real reaction, and now you're getting his laughter. So,
2: yeah. But she did, I mean, she appreciated where she came from. She called horror films fun. Um, and she said that, you know, a, a good fun horror film will always just walk that edge of being uh, campy every time, but that a good director like De Palma was keeps it right on the line so that it doesn't fall over completely into to camp. And she also acknowledged that, you know, training ground for, for new filmmakers, you couldn't really get better than making a good horror movie. Not like some people that are kind of ashamed of their beginnings in horror. She seems to appreciate it, even though she acknowledges she's not a fan of it. So that's kind of awesome. That makes me appreciate her a little bit more.
3: Margot Kidder did a, a great job playing the dual role. There was that question early on, you know, it's like, is, is, or isn't it, you know, are we dealing with two people? Are we dealing with one? You know, you didn't know for sure until the movie progressed and and, and you got to understand what was really happening, but I think she did a really good job. What little we saw, uh, Dominique, doing that dual role, I think. That, that, now,
2: let me yeah. ask you, since it was your first time viewing, and I don't know if you knew the plot beforehand, but did you... I've seen it so many times that, you know, I can't even remember the, the twist the first time I saw it. Were you surprised? Or did you kind of suspect from the beginning? I
3: think I've seen other films where you hear the conversation going on in the room, but you're not seeing the conversation... I wasn't overly surprised. You know, I, there was that question, eh, what are we dealing with here? But then it, it quickly became apparent to me that now we're just dealing with one person. Okay. Here. So, so
2: spoiler so, alert, by the way, yeah, if, spoiler if, if, alert. if you want to be surprised by the possible twist ending, uh, fast forward a couple minutes.
3: <laughs> that aside, you know, it didn't take away anything. You know, it didn't hurt the overall film. Another thing I wanted to, to comment on, of course, as we get the big reveal and that last act, the dream sequence, which is where the movie really kind of goes down a very dark path. <laughs> the majority of the film is shot on thirty-five millimeter, but that sequence was shot on sixteen millimeter to give it a more gritty appearance, which it did look grittier mm-hmm. while watching it. That was actually that sequence was inspired by the the dream sequence in Rosemary's Baby. Ryan De Palma was a big fan of of uh, Polanski and *Rosemary's Baby* and duplicated that surreal dream experience. While again, the movie certainly takes a turn at that point, I think it uh, incredibly well done, creepy and dirty and seedy as it may be. Uh, I, I particularly enjoyed that. So, yeah, uh, um, yeah I, you know, like I said, it was a pleasant surprise first time viewing, and, and I uh, I enjoyed it, and, and I could see it's something that I would watch again. I would love to see. Something, I'd love to see more extras. I was surprised this, I don't know what number this is from Criterion Collection, but there wasn't a lot of extras. I don't know what may be in the archives, having lost Margot Kidder, I hope that there's something somewhere where she really talks about this film in detail, otherwise that opportunity's been lost. But it's an easy film, to find elsewhere, even though I think the DVD is a, is a little bit trickier to find, and I don't believe it's on Blu-ray, um, it is on Filmstruck, which is Criterion's streaming service, which uh, I have had. Uh, I don't have right now because I simply don't have enough time to really get the full benefit of it. But uh, if you love Criterion, you've got to get Filmstruck. It's There's so much good Criterion content on there. Uh, it's also on iTunes, so uh, it is readily available out there, and, and uh, there is a remake of this film, which I really didn't do any research on, so I can't speak logically on it, but I did see that there was a remake, I think, in
2: 2005. Is that the one with Amy Poehler and Tina Fey or something, sisters? No, yeah. <laughs> that's, that's the third <laughs> film of the trilogy. Uh, <laughs> that, that, that would be taking the film down a whole different path. I forgot there was a remake of that. I know there's a remake of It's Alive, which I've seen. I don't recall seeing there i i think i have seen it but obviously not memorable and it would be hard to see a remake of this because
3: it's so to me unique and i think it's a it's a prime example of of there just should some films shouldn't be remade uh and especially the 1970s has just has a kind of a gritty feel to a lot of the films and it's kind of like there's nothing as horrific as that first Texas Chainsaw Massacre. I don't care how many times you remake it, you can add all the gore and blood and guts you want, but it, there's nothing that's going to be as terrifying as that original film, which still, you know, I've only seen it a couple of times, and it, and, and it holds up in my mind, and it's still unsettling. Just films made in this time period, there was a grittiness to it, and, and Sisters certainly had it. Not as much as I anticipated, but it had it.
2: Well, let's move on to Black Christmas, between the two she made a couple of movies and i'm a little i don't understand how this she also made a quiet day in belfast which i assume was made in ireland and the the movie earlier with gene wilder was in ireland so i wonder if they were both made and this one just didn't come out till later but she made that and she made a movie called the gravy train and then she made black christmas
3: In Black Christmas, Marco Kidder plays wisecracking party girl Barb, who provokes not only a serial crank caller, but also her sorority sisters. When one of them goes missing, Barb may feel partly responsible beneath her drunken haze.
7: Super strikes again. Fastest tongue in the west. That was sick. I really don't think you should provoke somebody like that, Barb. Oh, listen, this guy's minor league in the city. I get two of those a day. Maybe. But you know, that town girl was raped a couple of weeks ago.
9: Darling, you can't rape a townie. You
7: really are too much, Barb. Oh, come on. This is a sorority house, not a convent. I'll see you later. I'm going to go pack. Come on, Claire. She didn't mean anything. No, really, Jess, it's okay. I have to finish packing anyway. Hasn't she had enough trouble fitting in here without
9: you getting at her all the time? Come on, I know a professional version when I see one.
2: We both have seen this many times, I'm sure. Yes. I appreciate this one more and more each time I watch it. Oh, yeah. Um... How do you feel about it?
3: I love it This was a film I didn't see until probably oh gosh maybe six or seven years ago I wouldn't even say ten years ago it'd be a little less than that. I was aware of it and I'd seen bits and pieces of it flipping the channels but I had never watched it from beginning to end and it, yeah I, I there's so many things I love about this film. First off, the Christmas setting. We don't get a lot of horror movies at Christmas, and we don't get a lot of good horror <laughs> movies at Christmas. Uh, I've seen my fair share of bad ones, and this one, to me, is like, I think, the best. Unless I'm forgetting something, I think it's one of the best um, uh, of the, the Christmas horror films. And Christmas actually, I mean, it's it's it lurks in the background of this film um, it's, it's, you're not getting it as in your faces and some other films. I think you, you get a feel that it's the holidays, you get some, some singing, it's cold. Um, you get some snow, which I, I thought looked like real snow. And I found out it was fake snow, hmm. uh, apparently whatever they used because it, they weren't having, it was, I guess they shot it at that time of year, but there wasn't snow like the normally is. And I guess whatever they used May the grass grow that much greener in the spring. <laughs> bizarre little bit of trivia that I read. I love the cast of this film, and I love the some of the quirkiness that it's directed by Bob Clark, who has one of the most bizarre filmographies on the face of the earth. A guy who can do a, a great thriller, Sherlock Holmes, Murder by Decree, also does Black Christmas also does porkies one of the all-time most iconic 1980s coming of age films does rhinestone dear god rhinestone yeah. who does one of the worst movies i think ever made baby geniuses only surpassed in in by baby geniuses 2 which <laughs> i think is legitimately one of the lowest ranked films on imdb and then does one of the most iconic Christmas, true Christmas films of all time, and a Christmas story. I, I swear, at the beginning of this film, when you're, and maybe it was the end of the film, when you're seeing the house, and and it's Christmas. He had to have been thinking of that when he was doing a Christmas story, because it looks like the house almost at the end of a Christmas story. In my head, I'm hearing, dun, 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 dun. It's like you know, and I'm ready to hear Ralphie. And and you know, in this bizarre mind, I'm like, "What if? What if you know, Black Christmas is the sequel to a Christmas story? You know that Christmas story is like the prequel, right? Maybe that's what happened to Ralphie. You know, (laughs) he got that BB gun at a young age, and he just went wacko. I don't know. I love Black Christmas, and it was a lot of fun revisiting this one. Um, And I feel like Margot is playing
2: pretty much herself at this point in her life. Um, I'll I'll, I'll mention later some of the comments she made about it, but, you know, she was a big partier at that time. She talks about never on set, but even though her character was a drinker and a smoker, never on set would they really drink or party it up. But, boy, some of those nights, you know, in between work days sounded like they were pretty crazy. So I, I feel like this is some version of herself, just kind of loose, free, I knew girls like this in college. Not very many of them, but there's, you know, special ones. I think there always is one. I mean, uh, just... Uh, I knew a few. <laughs> bold and brash and brazen and saying anything she feels like and always a glass in her hand. Sometimes she's juggling a glass in one hand and the full bottle in the other hand. Even though, you know, sisters gave her more of an opportunity to act you know this, I think. I think she looks great, and I like her character, even though she's kind of a scoundrel. And uh, I, I think she's th- funny. I mean, yeah, yeah. She, she,
3: she, her character's bad, but she's funny being bad, right? You can't help but laugh. Yeah. Well, let's see what
6: Steve Turek had to say about this. As for Black Christmas, what a cast! I couldn't believe it. You know, for something that was a low budget early seventies movie. They ended up either getting stars on the rise or some people that are already stars currently, like Olivia Hussey and Kerr uh, Delu. I think that's how you pronounce his name. And, of course, um, Margot Kidder was in there when she was on her rise on the way up. And um, I loved it that they had John Saxon even. I always remember him for Enter the Dragon and um, different guest star appearances he did, like in The Six Million Dollar Man. And, of course, he was on Nightmare on Elm Street and so on. And the cast just goes on and on. I really enjoyed the movie. I would say out of ten bloody unicorns, I'd probably give it um, six and a half, almost a seven. You know, it wasn't a great movie, but it was a very entertaining movie. I enjoyed the perspective that we never got to see the killer's face. It was from his point of view when he was on screen. Um, and stuff like that. So it was been, made it pretty. It made it enjoyable, or a little bit different that way. Knowing that that was one of the early ones to do that, in back in 1974. Um, some things that I thought were really good were Mrs. Mac. Uh, she was a very enjoyable character, bringing a lot of levity with it. And boy, could she store the alcohol all over the place! I mean, in a book, in the toilet um in the closet all over the place she was storing booze and i have to say in the bathroom scene where she was pulling the alcohol up from the toilet and when she was earlier brushing her teeth i know it was one of those things i'm sure you guys may be the same way i kept expecting every time that she kept popping up and looking in the mirror you know that the killer was going to be behind her and uh, so it's just like when she kept bending down looking up and then looking up I you think oh this is going to be the time no this is going to be the time Great fake out. I mean, I enjoyed that it was him kind because of, we're so used to that um, trope with the killer popping up in the mirror. Uh, I really did enjoy. Like I said earlier, I didn't buy that Peter was ever one of the suspects throughout the whole movie. You know, it was just because the timelines didn't match up with how he would have gotten there and how he would have been up upstairs. It just to me, it's never worked out. I knew right away he was a red herring. I did find it interesting that they never identified who the killer was, which left it open for a sequel, which of course never came. And then they did that really bad remake in 2006, which went back into tried to explain Billy's backstory and that kind of thing. Uh, But really overall it was enjoyable. I don't want to spoil the ending. Obviously I spoiled a little bit about one person being a red herring and but they never identified the killer but it's um it, it was good i mean i enjoyed it i mean I, I i'm not one that needs everything answered you know it was it was as long as the movie's an enjoyable ride and you have and you have fun doing it as for Margot Kenner playing barb i thought she did a really good job playing the wild child of the sorority sisters you know um uh she had some great funny lines there especially with the sergeant when she was giving the sergeant the telephone number and he didn't know um, what a certain word meant uh, that was that was funny um, she kept trying to get one of the children to drink at the Christmas party uh, it, it was just like she was just from another planet. and she was just put in this sorority and um, it was just it was just very interesting and again she brought humor to a horror-type thing, which you need. Same thing within the police department, that sergeant brought humor into it. Mrs. Mack brought humor into it. So I thought it was nice that there was humor in there with the, um, the scary parts. And personally, what I did like about this film also is that it was not a ton of gore. It was very, very minimalistic, if at any at all. Um, I mean, not, well, there was some, but it wasn't like, movie nowadays where everything you have to show all the graphic violence and all the blood and guts and that kind of stuff so like I said, six and a half almost seven bloody unicorns out of ten is what I would rate it bloody unicorns
3: I've never heard of <laughs> that rating system I but love, I love it. it, I do too I absolutely love it Yeah, I, I really agree with you on, on all counts, uh, the cast it's a fun cast you know, Olivia Hussey uh, I was surprised that she's still working. Actually, she does a lot of voiceover work hmm. now. Um, her voice is heard in a lot of Star Wars video games, which is bizarre. But oh, and she, talk about a lovely lady! Oh, oh, she yeah, she really was, and, and uh, she's in a film that has been on my radar for a long time—an early, I think it's eighty or eighty-two Australian film called Turkey Shoot, hmm. which is a Australian modern-day take on the most dangerous game. Hmm. I'm really curious. I didn't know she was in that, so that that really really kind of bumped up my list now of films i want to see and if i can interject right
2: real quick on that she was a big thing at this time she just made romeo and juliet and uh, margot kidder in one of the bonuses talks about how you know olivia was very serious and here is you know margot kidder paired with andrea martin from sctv who i kept expecting to say can you direct me to the hotel <laughs> with, that was horrible but i think you know what yeah, i mean oh yeah, yeah. anyway uh, they were trying to make her laugh. And she just wouldn't have any of it because she was so deadly serious and she wasn't really prepared for the success that she was getting after Romeo and Juliet.
3: So, well, so. and to go on that, in 1986, um, she was up for the title role in the movie Roxanne, hmm. and, uh, which eventually went to Daryl Hannah. When she met Steve Martin... He, uh, as legend has it, was like, oh my God, you're you're Olivia Hussey. And I was like, you're one of my all-time favorite films. She thought he was talking about Romeo and Juliet. No, Black Christmas oh. is one of Steve Martin's most favorite films. And at that time, he claimed to have seen it 27 times. <laughs> so I, I love that little anecdote. Yeah. And even if it's not true, it's cool. Yeah. Uh, but I can see Steve Martin, you know, whether, maybe it was a joke for all we know, but... This film, you know, was, was an early slasher film. Um, and, and some say, you know, Halloween always gets the credit as being the, the birth of the modern-day slasher film. And you hear films like Peeping Tom or Psycho. Uh, I don't think Texas Chainsaw Massacre is is a slasher. No. Uh, it, it's a straightforward horror film. But this movie, in my mind, is is definitely a slasher film. Different a little bit, but but certainly falls in, in line as a, as a slasher film, a la Halloween or Friday the Thirteenth. I think it's a little better than what we would get, you know, a decade later. Certainly, for the most part, not saying it's better than Halloween, but I'm saying it's better than a lot of the other typical slasher films. And and I'm surprised that this didn't get a sequel because, as he said, it leaves the opening there. Well, let's just talk about that. This is a spoiler alert. I'm going to jump ahead here. Some of the most incompetent police officers. I love John Saxon. All right, his role of Lieutenant Ken Fuller. He, you know, I love him and everything he does. Steve mentioned six million dollar man. Yes, absolutely. Day of the Robot episode. He's he's he was the first bionic battle. He battled Steve Austin in one of the very first episodes, and he was a robot. Trivia note his robot actually had the bionic sound effect first. And they liked it so much that they gave it to Steve Austin a few episodes later. But Hmm. no, John Saxon had that sound effect. The police force, they they think they've got the killer, but they don't bother to check the entire house because, I mean, there's bodies, they know, but they don't bother to to thoroughly check the entire house which doesn't make a lot of sense they they never go to the attic hmm right right that's where he's hiding out so you you've got a missing girl and and the the house maiden or you know marm or whatever she's still missing but they never go to the attic
2: and that's and, and it's not like it's hidden i mean he climbs down that that ladder ladder is permanently part of the wall
3: absolutely it's right there Hmm. um yeah i've never thought about total incompetence now obviously if they would have gone up there and you know you wouldn't have the big cliffhanger ending right (laughs) but as like and then they're like well she's asleep and they leave one guard outside the house and everyone just bails and i'm like so you know she's probably gonna sleep they she's got lots of drugs in her but no one's gonna stay with her she wakes up, you know, and I don't know, she's like a witness, and, and I, I don't know. I, and that's even after they know the calls came from the house. Yes. Huh. Yeah. Huh. Yeah, that, that's, I love the movie, but that's a huge, I don't know what you want to call it, but it's a big miss at the end of the film. It's like, the, these cops are not the sharpest tools in the shed. Um, speaking of which, Sergeant Nash, love his goofy character, I didn't pick up. He looked familiar. Yes, he was Coach Warren in Porky's. Have you seen? You've seen Porky's? I'm sure. Yeah, yeah. He's, he was Coach Warren in that. Hmm. So, Star Trek reference. It's time to mention that we got. You mentioned Andrea Martin, uh, who played Phil. Yes, she was in Star Trek Deep Space Nine. She played the Ferengi Ishka. She is the mother of Quark and Rom. And in Ferengi society, Ferengi women are supposed to be nude and subservient, and she puts on clothes and decides to use her brain. She's actually very intelligent. The episode was called Family Business. Hmm. So uh, a little bit of that's the Star Trek connection there.
2: And it's interesting. She's not really funny in in Black Christmas. No, not really. In fact, I found her character really endearing, though. She does a fantastic job because you can tell her relationship with Margot, with Barb, is... I, she really likes Barb, I think, and, you know, she's sort of ashamed at her behavior, but yet she's secretly, or not so secretly, pleased about it. I mean, you just watch Andrea yeah. Martin, and she yeah. likes, she'll like she put her head down and smile, and you just know, she knows that it's wrong, but she's
3: saying, go for it, Barb. She is, yeah.
2: <laughs> I, I love, I think it's a sweet performance.
3: It is. There's so many, like I said, there's so many good characters in this film, and, and good, Actors, um, Mrs. Mack, yeah, <laughs> what a lush! I mean, you know, pulling the the liquor out of the <laughs> out of the toilet—that's hardcore, folks. <laughs> um, and then that's yeah, Marion Waldman. I, you know, I didn't recognize her, but I thought, well, she's so funny in this. She must have done other work. Not a lot. She only had six film credits, hmm. but she did lots of stage work. So she didn't really do much on on film, but she did do apparently lots of stage work. So. Uh, this is really her only notable film. Now, I don't know how you pronounce it. I've heard it multiple names. Care, Delia, Delieu, as Peter. Of course, we all know him from as Dave in 2001 A Space Odyssey, The Star Lost. Do you know that he's actually in a new film called Fahrenheit 451? It's oh, a, uh, an HBO, HBO original film that I haven't heard much about. I didn't even know they were making it until it hit hbo last month i'm really curious if it's yeah i saw that and i didn't know is it a series
2: like uh handmaid's tale but i think it's just a movie it's just a movie and it's it's just i don't think it got very good
3: reviews but. uh he plays a historian so i don't doesn't look like he's got a really big hmm. part i met him several years ago at uh trek expo down in tulsa he was there with gary lockwood and they were doing a joint kind of 2001 deal and and uh gary lockwood does a lot of conventions uh care Kier does not a little bit of trivia on on his on his character he only worked for a week on the film uh he never met margot kidder uh <laughs> he barely met john saxon but they film it so that he really uh, it seems like he appears in a lot more of the film yeah uh, because his scenes are so short and kind of spread out over the course of the film in order to raise more suspicion that Peter's actually the killer, Billy. Nick Mancuso, who did the voice of Billy, or a lot of the voices of Billy, actually overdubbed six of Care lines of dialogue, which I didn't pick up. Hmm. It's kind of hard to recognize him. He looks very different than he did in 2001. Uh, but that was, I guess, to kind of throw off, because then I guess maybe they were hoping you'd pick up that you hear Billy's voice and you hear his voice. I, kind of went by me. I didn't pick up on that, but uh, I guess maybe they were hoping that hmm. audiences would pick up on that. But And to, uh, to touch on what Steve said about
2: him being a red herring, yeah, I don't think I ever really suspected, but that's beside the point. I think the fact is he was a red herring for the story, for the policeman. I think he works as that. I can easily see how they thought he was responsible. They wouldn't have known that the timelines didn't match up and all that. That was like, hey... He, you know they're like giving us the killer on a silver platter, so we knew better. But I think it totally works in the movie that he is a, a suspect. And oh yeah, uh, um, and I think we need to mention too the subject matter of this was pretty risque for the time, and that's that that Peter and um, I can't remember Olivia has yes. suggested. Yes. Uh, yeah, they uh, she had gotten pregnant and she very much wanted to abort the baby, and he did not. That was the um, conflict that they thought may have led him to kind of go crazy because he yeah. was he was crazy he uh artistic type played a piano but things don't go well he tears
3: it up and that, he's violent that scene where he's uh smashing the piano that's that's pretty it comes out of nowhere shocking you know if you're thinking of somebody who's so I mean, first off anyone who plays the piano i would be like the last thing you would do <laughs> right okay? so yeah you can yeah. tell right there he he was unhinged.
2: Yeah, I didn't know if his recital went poorly or if he was just upset about
3: what was going on, but he, yeah, he, he wasn't totally well. No, no, which is a yeah, good red herring, I guess. So this movie aired during primetime on NBC under the title Stranger in the House. Hmm. And it was apparently, um, I guess it was played once and then that was it because it was deemed too scary.
2: Hmm.
3: Um, even editing out... The various bad parts of the film for television, and I remember the title "Stranger in the House." And so there's a part of me that wonders if maybe I saw this years ago on TV and just never really picked up on it. Hmm. If I saw any of it back then, I didn't. It didn't really stick with me much, or I didn't see the whole film. But I thought that was interesting that it was played once and then, and then wasn't on television again. You know, the the film was written by Roy Moore, who really doesn't have a lot of credits to his name other than a movie called The Last Chase. Uh, from 1981 or 82, uh, it's Lee Majors, uh, and it's like a future where something—I think—auto racing is outlawed or something, and and he play he, like he steals a car and is driving cross country, and hmm. uh, it's kind of a post-apocalyptic, you know, you know, grim future. And came, I think, post Six Million Dollar Man, pre Fall Guy. Or maybe early season or two of Fall Guy. HBO used to play the heck out of that movie in the 1980s. And so I, I, I've seen it probably 10 times back in the 80s and have never seen it again since. So <laughs> a little bit of, of uh, trivia there about the writer who didn't, like I said, didn't do a whole lot other than this one in Black Christmas
2: this disc does and let's see this is the blu-ray from shout factory does have a terrific special feature that's an interview with margot kidder and it must have been like at an anniversary you know an anniversary of the release of it or something and it it cracks me up you can see how how smart and witty margot kidder is and a little bit sassy i mean in the middle they're talking about black christmas and everything and then whoever this poor interviewer is, asked her, he, he actually calls Superman a cult movie, and what was it like? And she like she dressed him up and down and said, oh, well, that wasn't a cult movie, that was a whole different story, because it made money and blah, blah, blah. So, it you know, she was very sharp. I, I, it's just, it's funny to watch. She's fun, she's funny. She talks a, a lot about, you know, things I mentioned before, working with Andrea Martin and Olivia Hussey. She talked about the unicorn scene, where... She's let's say she's attacked by the killer and said they were filming that she had no idea what was happening and it's interesting because that scene stands out for me because of the way it's shot and the way she, as she's attacked she kind of arches her back on the bed and bounces kind of up and down I mean it's a very physical scene and she said she had no idea what was really happening during that scene she said she improvised quite a bit and the director Bob Clark had to rein her in but she when she finally saw black christmas she like she said earlier about horror movies thought it was a fun movie she is thrilled that it has achieved cult status but she just really doesn't understand why and uh, looking back on her participation in it she thinks she put the just the right amount of effort effort into it but she was just never really thinking of of the final product and we've talked about that before how You know, these people make a movie, they never suspect that 20, 30 years later, it's going to have a status and people are going to want them to remember (laughs) stories about making it. And at the time, that was the last thing they were thinking about. She talked a little bit about, you know, her age group, that generation we talked about in the late 60s and 70s. She said that you know her goal was just to kind of get out of control and just see how far she could go. She thinks people were less uptight in those days and uh she makes a funny comment about uh, those damn Christian organizations <laughs> wouldn't allow that to go on these days. That that's a great extra feature to watch. I think gives a lot of insight into the the character, the character that was Margot Kidder. So I recommend if when you watch Black Christmas to catch that
3: also. I didn't see it on Blu-ray, but I, a very good copy of it is available on YouTube. So if you're so inclined, check it out. It's, it's pretty readily available out there. It's an easy film to find, uh, although it sounds like the Blu-ray is the way to go. Uh, and Shout Factory is about all you need to know. Once you hear that, you know you're getting a quality production. I love it. seen it multiple times. I'll see it again. And, you know, just a, a lot of fun. Yep, I agree. I agree. I think
2: I'll say at the end how I rank the three, but um, so far the first two we've talked about are both top-notch. I love them.
3: In the Amityville Horror, Margot Kidder plays Kathy Lutz, attempting to build a new family with husband George and three children from her previous marriage. She becomes increasingly terrified and helpless when they move into the spooky house where 23-year-old Ronald DeFeo murdered his entire family a year earlier.
8: This can be another bedroom, or a playroom, whichever you
9: prefer. Mm-hmm.
0: i tell you what, I think maybe we'll wander around on our own again, now that we got the layout. We can meet you downstairs. How'd that be?
8: I'll be in the kitchen. Take your time.
9: We won't
7: be long. What do you think? I love it. Well, honey,
9: $80,000? I mean, might as well be $800,000.
0: Listen. the house is worth 120000 easy. Mm-hmm. And if I move my office into that little cottage out back, that'll save that rent. And the boathouse means I won't have to shell out for mooring charges, which they're raising, by the way.
9: You didn't tell me that.
0: Well, there was nothing to be done about it.
9: I just wish that uh, all those people hadn't died here. Dude, a guy kills his whole family. Doesn't that bother you?
0: Well, yeah, sure, but... houses don't have memories. I oh, know. Well, I do. The house wouldn't even be for sale, and if it was, we couldn't afford it if we had uh, tuna casseroles for a year.
8: Oh, you're gonna be very happy. It's a wonderful house. I'm sure they'll accept your offer. Don't don't worry about a thing. I'll handle the details.
4: Just go on and get ready to move.
2: (laughs) (laughs) So after Black Christmas, uh, she Margot had, again, good opportunity to work with some big leading men. In 1975, she made The Great Waldo Pepper with Robert Redford. 1975, The Reincarnation of Peter Proud with Michael Sarrazin. We almost talked about that today. I'd like to do that sometime in the future because it's a great movie. She has a very small but impactful part in that. But she made that in 1975. Uh, She made a movie called 92 in the Shade and ended up marrying the director. Uh, She was married to him for a very short time. In March of 1975, she appeared in Playboy in a black and white pictorial and she wrote the article that accompanied those pictures then in 1976 she took a break Uh, she had a a daughter her one child was born in 1976 did maybe one or two tv shows at the end of this break and then of course in 1978 she made superman an experience she calls bizarre and weird Uh, she just didn't really know what to expect uh, uh, out of the worldwide hit that that became one more movie after that shoot the sundown in 1978 and then amityville horror in 1979 what else was going on in 1979 let's set the scene for uh, the time that amityville horror came out
3: well in the uh, the real world per se gallon of gas was 86 cents Wish we had that price now, as prices of gases seem to be going it's up. It's getting expensive. higher,
2: though, based on some of our other episodes. This
3: is true. This is true. An average house, this seems low to me, $13,650. That seems really low for 1979. But, yeah. I don't know, maybe not. But that's, you know, the site that we get all the other information from. So, in comparison, a Sony Walkman which would have been cutting-edge technology in 1979, was $200. Uh, You could buy a Toyota Corolla for uh, about $3,600. And if you wanted to buy an Atari, it was $200. ESPN launched in 1979. Voyager 1 passed Jupiter, and uh, we were able to see close-up images of Jupiter's rings for the first time. We had the Three Mile Island nuclear incident. The infamous Who concert in Ohio killed 11 and injured dozens. It was uh, featured on an episode of WKRP in Cincinnati that same year. Uh, Richard, I have a, a something for you. Knock, knock.
2: Who's there? I got trampled at the... Who's <laughs> <laughs> Who's there? <laughs>
3: Okay. Wow. Wow. You're supposed to say, I
2: got trampled at the
3: Who. At the Who. Yes, I got (laughs) trampled at the Who. I got it. I got, yeah. I. I, Sorry. (laughs) We apologize to the family and relatives of the the 11 killed at the Who concert. Um, (laughs) So on that note, Saddam Hussein uh, assumed leadership of Iraq. We know how that turned out. Um, and the salt II treaty was signed the strategic arms limitation talks a little bit of a fun trivia on that my dad was actually involved in some of the early salt II talks uh... my dad was a uh... executive with the chamber of commerce in newton kansas and uh... he was invited by the the national chamber of commerce to washington dc he was he was brought to the white house he uh met President Jimmy Carter and was involved in some of the early talks. It was like they were talking business related and, and talking about arms limitation and I guess a, a slew of topics that were ultimately part of the SALT II SALT II Treaty. So wow. had for many years an official White House napkin that my dad that was my my memoir from the trip dad brought back. He said, here's a napkin. That's all I can get out of the White House with. So, uh, a little fun little bit of trivia. Oh,
2: that's that. really awesome. I think in 1979, my dad probably ate some salt.
3: Oh, jeez. <laughs> well, um, TV. What was popular on TV at the time? M.A.S.H., still hugely popular. The Love Boat, Three's Company, Happy Days, The Waltons, Charlie's Angels. Musically, we had Heart of Glass by Blondie. We were... The tail end of the disco era, just on the verge of the urban cowboy era. But we still had stuff like Hot Stuff by Donna Summer. We had uh, Michael Jackson's Off the Wall was released. And uh, Pink Floyd's The Wall was released. Movies, mainstream movies. We had Star Trek The Motion Picture, another Star Trek reference. I just re-watched that a couple nights ago. Rocky II. We had Alien. We had... Roger Moore as James Bond in Moonraker. Obviously, you're seeing a lot of Star Wars influences here. We had uh, The Deer Hunter in Kramer vs. Kramer. And horror movies. We had Phantasm. We had Nosferatu the Vampire with Klaus Kinski. Tourist Trap, which is a really creepy, bizarre little film that I just need to revisit. Uh, We had the, The Visitor, which is a bizarre film. Uh, the Brood, uh, Dracula with Franklin Langella, and one of my all-time favorite films, Salem's Lot, the uh, four-hour TV miniseries based on the Stephen King novel with David Soul and James Mason. And then we had the Amityville Horror in 1979, based on, quotation mark, real <laughs> events uh, that took place uh, at the, uh, that little house in Amityville with the Lutz family, you know, when this movie came out, there was obviously a lot of conversation. Did this really happen? Did it not happen? And in the decades that have followed, uh, a lot has come out about, well, you know, both the uh, uh, the Letts family as well as Ronald DeFeo, who, of course, murdered his family, which is seen at the very beginning of this film and leads to the events with the Lutz family buying the house a year later, as I was doing some research on this, giving the background for this leading up to the making of the movie, Ronald DeFeo killed his entire family with a shotgun in the middle of the night while everyone was sleeping, which in itself is bizarre that he would be able to have a shotgun, shoot one person, but nobody else in the family bothered to wake up. There's still a lot unanswered in this, in this bizarre crime. Ronald DeFeo's story has changed constantly over the years to thoughts that, there was a, that he had assistance, that he had help, that his sister may have been involved. He, in turn, shot her after she helped kill some of the other family members. There apparently a gun has been found in recent years, in the waterway near the house, but they can't get any solid, uh, you know, uh, numbers or, or serial numbers or anything. But it seemed to support a theory that there was additional help. I personally think this is interesting that uh, Ronald DeFeo had some dealings with the mob. To me, this sounds like a perfect mob hit. And and Ronald DeFeo kind of took the fall. He's clearly not mentally all there because his story really constantly has changed to the point where when he he filed for an appeal the judge basically said your story has changed too much you know basically anything you say at this point we can't trust and so I don't think we'll ever know the full story of what happened that night you know yes he did claim that the voices you know told him to do this but he claimed a lot of stuff and I, I, I don't know for me that mob connection seems awful odd, but we'll never know for sure exactly what happened. The Letts family knew this when they bought the house a year later. They got it really cheap, and then, of course, the next thing we know, there's there's a book out in the Letts family, and, and all the events that we see in this movie is relayed in the book. I remember my mom reading, and I think it was like Family Circle or Vanity Fair or some magazine, the accounts of, of the Letts family, and I was fascinated with it. As the years have progressed, though, and even as early as, as 1979 when this movie was being uh, released, there was a lot of questions about what, what the Letts family went through didn't really happen. Uh, an attorney by the name of William Weber, uh, who was Ronald DeFeo's defense attorney, filed a lawsuit against George and Kathy Letts in 1979 Uh, Accusing them of fraud and uh, said that they had originally, apparently they had an agreement to collaborate with Weber on a book and subsequent movie. And Weber, of course, said that he and the Lutzes concocted the whole horror story and as basically an insurance scam and uh, over many bottles of wine. Mm. Uh, And then they, in turn, then went to... Jay Anson, who was eventually the author of the book, he has claimed, William Weber has claimed that they made up the story, and it was really part of an insurance kind of way of getting out of a house in which they bought and found that they were way in over their head and they needed a way out. I believe one of the children has has been pretty vocal and, and has said that, yeah, none of it really took place. Hmm that they were, you know, the children have never really been interviewed much and I think it's the oldest son and I think he's had some trouble, he, I think he's been in jail, you know, and, and it was kind of a family agreement, don't say anything, we're going to lose a lot of money type deal, but now years later, the, you know, I think uh, I think both George and Kathy are, are gone now, I think they both have passed uh, or at least one of them have passed in any case, I think it's the oldest son who said, yeah, that none of it happened it was all part of a of a big scam but in 1979 it was it was still a big story and a lot of the potential scam storyline really hadn't come out yet interestingly enough though when uh, James Brolin and Margot Kidder both read the script and Brolin met George Letson and his children both didn't believe the story they they had a lot of doubt about whether or not but they th- thought it was a good mo- potentially a good movie which is why they signed on to it. James Brolin felt like there was a potential for this to be a moneymaker. He took less money up front with a promise of 10% of the gross sales, and the movie was such a big blockbuster, bigger than the production company thought, he went on to make about $17 million, which, as of four years ago, would have been uh, the equivalent of $55 million. Wow. So not a bad little deal for... Um, you know, for at that time, James Brolin was not a, a huge movie star. He had done some movies. He had done Fantastic Voyage. He'd done some appearances, a lot of a TV work. Marcus Welby, three different episodes of Batman in the 60s. Uh, he had been in Westworld, which is probably, I think, his biggest movie. And then this film, which actually kind of hurt his career for a while. He was kind of a right. mean, nasty guy in this movie. And And his his career kind of took a turn. But at this point, this was a big movie for him. And that was probably one of the biggest paychecks he collected, being kind of smart and saying, I'll take a percentage of the profits, feeling confident enough in the film, even though he didn't really believe the events were true. Hmm. Yeah, I want to say a couple things about the time, Um,
2: 1979. So first of all, that's just like a year past what we normally talk about on the podcast. But it totally fits in with uh, classic horror. It's one of those that... I imagine there are others we'll talk about from time to time, even though it is a little bit past what we technically, for our purposes, call classic horror. The book came out in 77, and I think it you alluded to it, but I think it's important to say what a phenomenon that was. And this was the mid-70s when... Occult was a real big thing I mean, the Bermuda Triangle UFOs, everything uh, Edgar Cayce and Psychic And, you know, all of that stuff
3: With Leonard Nimoy, every week we were getting paranormal investigations So
2: this fit right in with that And man, I can remember It's, yeah, I don't know where I first heard from it But, you know, Amityville Horror what The DeFeos, what really happened That was just part of the Culture, not even pop culture Just I was aware of it, and everyone talked about it. It was a big thing. So that, I'm sure, contributed to everyone wanted to see this movie, and it was a huge hit.
3: And you had some interesting character actors in this movie. The, uh, the four fathers, the four priests in the film, looked familiar to me. Uh, John Larch, not a household name, played Father Nuncio. He was uh, Clint Eastwood's boss in Dirty Harry. And having just kind of seen that clip, I, like, recognized him. Again, a character actor usually pops up in kind of a bad guy or boss role. Murray Hamilton played Father Ryan. Now, a lot of people will recognize him as the mayor from Jaws. Um, And he was pretty highly billed because I
2: noticed in the credits, and, oh, I forgot he's in there. He's only in one scene, I think.
3: He is only in one scene, yeah. But he's been in a lot of different things. Again, a pretty well-known character actor, and jaws having come out just four years earlier he he was pretty well known for that i I don't know if he was in jaws 2 or not which i think came out in 79 maybe so if he's in that that might explain why he was higher build now don stroud plays the younger father boland i didn't recognize the name didn't recognize him he's actually has 163 credits uh and is still acting Hmm. uh he's a a character actor he blends into the background one of his most recent films just a few years ago was Django Unchained he played a sheriff in that film mm. so yeah definitely still very visible or invisible as the <laughs> case may be of course you got Rod Steiger as, as Father Delaney he had played in, in Jesus of Nazareth as Pontius Pilate which I think I did mention that Olivia Hussey was also in that she played the Virgin Mary uh, that was a very popular miniseries in the late 70s. Uh, he played in W.C. Fields and Me. He was uh, the original lead in, in, uh, in The Heat of the Night. Uh, one of my favorite sci-fi Ray Bradbury anthology films, The Illustrated Man. Uh, he plays, I guess, the title character, if you will. I should say James Brolin, after this, you know, his film career definitely kind of took a different turn. He, he was in Capricorn 1. And his film roles started to become a little less, and he kind of shifted to TV work again. He did 115 episodes of the Hotel TV series, which has been totally forgotten. Of course, uh, he's still acting. He's in a series called Life in Pieces. He's done 66 Hmm. episodes of that. I think people probably recognize him and know him today, or maybe even confuse him with his son, Josh Brolin, who is now a big name in movies... Having two huge Marvel movies in the time span of what three weeks, The Avengers and and Deadpool 2. So Josh Brolin has has kind of uh, secured his his niche. And of course, he played Jonah Hex a few years back, which I think people rightfully forget. So you got a great cast. And
2: and please, I, I I'm sure I'm interrupting you because I'm sure you're about to say this, but many people. Myself included, know James Brolin as Mr. Barbra Streisand. Mr. Barbra Streisand,
3: indeed, indeed. And I think, you know, James Brolin is... He's just... I've always liked him as as an actor, and I know I've seen him in a lot of other little bit parts and stuff, and I remember him vividly from this film. Because you want to like him, you feel sorry for him, but, man, he's an ass at times in this movie, clearly under the influence. I don't think, though, we really get... As really much of a redemption of his character by the end of the film. I mean, he, he, spoiler line, he, he saves the dog. Yes. That's what I was going to say. He, he saves the dog, but you know, I, I didn't feel like we got a chance to really kind of see that nice, happy, gushy ending at the movie. I mean, it, it's resolved and they're safe and, and that's probably the way the film should have ended. But up until that point, you know, until he finally kind of comes to his senses is like, yeah, there, there's a lot of crazy stuff happening. Which, I don't know. I would have left that house a whole lot sooner. Well, you know, I
2: wonder about that. Because any haunted house movie you see, the big question is, why don't you just leave? So, this time watching it, I was thinking of that. And I was watching. And I don't think it's as obvious in this movie. I mean, strange things are happening. But, you know, not necessarily to them. They didn't experience what Rod Steiger experienced with the flies and the smell and everything. And I... I don't think anything really happened to cause them to leave. You know, that was severe enough. I mean, it builds, and then at the end. But by then, you know, they're trying to leave. And
3: so... The door blowing off the front of the house. uh, Well, yeah, I guess. I mean, for me, and maybe it's just because I've seen horror movies, I always think of that Eddie Murphy routine, you know. It's like, oh, what a lovely home we have here. Get out. (laughs) Oh, sorry, we gotta go. I, I would like time to go I don't know uh-huh. there was a lot of things but granted it kind of builds to the point where at the end everything I mean they, they had to leave I mean it was pretty obvious I, I think when I would have found the the room in the basement and I'm seeing a, a reflection of, of myself or what appears to be myself uh, I, I'm i gonna go but he wasn't in his right mind either he was being influenced that image, though, that is actually his brother with a beard playing It's so quick, you think it's like, well, it kind of looks like him, but it's not him, that was intentional, and that was a fun little little uh, you know thing that they threw in there for the movie.
2: Well, before we talk anymore, let's hear what Steve had to say yes. about this, and then I have something that may be a bit controversial that I have to say.
6: Hi, guys, this is Steve Turk again, and I just got done watching the Amityville Horror. Um... <laughs> excuse me like I said before it is like my second or third time I've seen it but it's been like a couple of decades and um, it was interesting I, I think I enjoyed it more when I was younger than um, I did now I still enjoyed it but I, I remember it being a lot uh, scarier and stuff like that and I guess when you know when you're a kid when you're I think I was probably like 13 or 14 when I first saw it. You know whole it's a lot more suspenseful also a lot uh, movies back then were different so it was really able to hit you in the gut so to speak um but overall i did enjoy it i I really of course i always like um james brolin and um, i like how you could see his character go from being this um um, charming good husband um, stepfather figure and you can see the madness um, start to go into him and of course most people probably seeing him for the first time think he's gonna end up being like in the shining with Jack Nicholson just trying to kill everybody and killing somebody. Um which he did try to in a sense kill his wife but then he snapped out of it once he once I guess she screamed, he realized Oh, that's not some um, vision, that is actually his wife, or maybe he lost his possession. Who knows? It's kinda of hard to say. Um I enjoyed Margot Kidder's acting in it also um, it's, it's interesting with these three different films that you have her with, uh, with completely different roles, this kind of being the caring, loving wife and mother and um, going through and doing her own detective work to figure out what's going on, possibly, and that kind of stuff. Um, so I really like how um, this trilogy that you guys set up show her in different aspects in different ways. I don't know if you intended that on purpose or whether it was a happy accident, but whatever the case, it was, it was nice. Um, out of the three films, I probably would say I enjoyed this one the least. I'd probably give it six out of ten upside-down crucifixes. I forgot to rate Sisters, and with Sisters, I would probably say eight out of ten Reynolds knives, um, making it the best one of the three, in my opinion. And um, other things to say about the end of the horror, I mean, it's a good ghost story, horror house type story. And um, really, I did like the Rod Steger, Steger role with Father Delaney. The thing to me that really didn't go anywhere was the sergeant's role. You know, because obviously when he first came in there, he was there. They introduced him when the murder first happened. He shows up there, realizes that um, uh, George Lux's character looks virtually the same as the person who did the murder the year before. He was going through and doing his own investigation, and you see him outside the house several times, watching it at night. You see him follow the other priest. You see him actually follow um, Kathy Lutz to the one father who then leads him to Father Delaney. So you're expecting him to go talk to Father Delaney. It yeah, doesn't happen. It's just the, Netflix, the last I, I saw of him was there. <laughs> So it was almost like, to me, what was the point of having the sergeant role there? It couldn't have been to add time because the movie was almost two hours long. So it wasn't like they needed it to add it, you know, to the, to fill out the time frame for, for theatrical production or, or, you know, sending out. So I don't really know what that character's role was or what it was needed for. Otherwise, I mean, like I said, it was like a 6 out of 10. I mean, I enjoyed it. I think if I was to rate it when I first saw it, when I was, ooh, like 11 or 12 years old, I probably would have put it at like a 9 out of 10, you know, because that, 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 I just remember that sucker just scaring me. And I think that's what happens sometimes when you go back to a movie that you saw when you were young. It doesn't always hold up as well to that first time, you you know, that youthful vision that's, that's in your memory and so on. I did like it that the dog actually survived. I forgot whether the dog lived or died. I'm like, oh, please don't kill the animal. So that was nice.
2: Thank you, Steve. That you bring up some good points. The the part about the the sergeant is is definitely a good point. I've got one though to to top that. I actually think Rod Steiger's part was overdone, and I this is a two hour movie. To me, that's too long. That that's too long for a horror movie. I never understood why when Rod Steiger was out of the house, strange things kept happening to him. I didn't understand why he would be at home or at the church and pick up the phone and his hand would burn. It seemed to me if you were out of the house, you were away from it. and. I just wonder maybe I don't know if that's part of the original story I wonder if they embellished it to, since they had such a fine actor like Rod Steiger to kind of beef that up and oh man does he chew the scenery in that one uh, scene where he's with the other priests and he's telling them how important it is that they investigate Whew, man he was hungry that
3: day it, it well was, <laughs> you know you mentioned that the, I, I, the, the priest who did go to the home changed his story A little bit. And so from nothing happened to, yes, there were the flies, there were odd experiences. Uh, I hate to say it, but it sounds like he got wrapped up in the hype as well. But initially, no, I think it was just a, I went, nothing happened. Are you sure nothing happened? <laughs> well, I didn't see some flies. Well, so. I did
2: go blind. <laughs> I did go blind,
0: yeah.
3: Yeah, so, uh, yeah, I think embellished is, is to, to say the least. Uh, even the, the story that the Lutzes told, I mean, I think they had to embellish it for the movie yeah. to, to make it a little bit more fun. Yeah.
2: So I think that really distracted from what was going on in the house, and I'm not really fond of that. Now, here's the controversial thing. I actually have never really liked that movie this much. I mean, it's okay. I'll, I'll watch it again from now on then. But brace yourself. I really enjoy the remake a lot more with Ryan Reynolds and Melissa George. I've never seen it.
3: So. Really? I never uh, had any now, interest in seeing it. So I to me, the first one, so. I
2: think. I actually think James Brolin is a little flat. I don't think there's. <laughs> Whoever thought I'd be comparing James Brolin and Ryan Reynolds with acting style. But James Brolin, when I say flat, it's not that he doesn't have his moments, but he doesn't make that drastic a change really from the start. I mean, from the start, he's kind of a quiet, dark, scary kind of looking guy. When he gets at his worst, it's not that far a stretch from where he started to me. In the remake, Ryan Reynolds, he's a lovable guy from the start. You like him, and what happens to him is more extreme, and I think, therefore, it has more emotional impact that it's really tearing this guy apart. I don't get that out of the original. The remake hits, I mean, if you took Amity of the Horror and you charted it out with a checklist, you know, have this, have this, have this, the remake has all of that, but it adds to it. It adds a little bit of backstory, not too much. It's not too heavy in it. But it just, it works for me better. And I know that may be sacrilege, but um, that's one remake out of very few that I, w- I would recommend you watch. It, probably not instead of this, but don't discount it just because of you know, what it is.
3: I was amazed at how many Amityville movies have been made. Oh, yeah, There was Amityville 2, The Possession in 1982 that <clears throat> is a prequel, And they they changed the name. It's not the DeFeo family, it's the Montelli family. That's because of the lawsuit that was happening at that point. And then there was Amityville 3D in 1983, which is trying to capitalize on the short-lived 3D phase at that point. And I guess that's not an official sequel, because in that they make reference to the DeFeo family again, which I think they mentioned in the Amityville horror. So I mean, I guess that name kind of changes a little bit. And there was a movie in 1989 called Amityville, The Evil Escapes, which was actually written by Sandor Stern, who actually wrote the script for this movie. There was actually four more direct-to-video, low-budget sequels from 1989 to 1996. In total, including the remake in 2005, there have been 14 Amityville <laughs> films most of which just have the name thrown on and Most of them don't even feature the house. And the house really is, is a non-entity. You know, after the Lutz's moved out, the next family moved in, nothing happened. Nothing. And in fact, they immediately questioned a lot of the things that the Lutz family said because I, I don't believe there was the room in the basement. They looked at the front door, and they're they said it was not a new door it was the original door so there was never blown off its hinges no family that's ever lived there and nothing's ever happened and in fact now the house doesn't even look the same they, they the evil eye windows have long since been replaced it looks the house still looks the same but it doesn't because they've done some changes you don't see i think they've they've uh, they covered up the fireplace too so it's no longer on the outside uh, and you don't see the windows, and it's uh, the people who live there are not big fans of the Amityville horror at all. And to the point where uh, it's almost impossible to even try to figure out where the house is, and to to sneak a peek. And once you get there, I think you'll be disappointed because it uh, it doesn't look the same. All that said, my wife and I had this discussion. I would have, I would, I would not move into a house. Having known that the previous people claimed that there was all this demonic stuff going on. Whether I believed in that stuff or not, I don't think I could move into that house. I know for sure, I don't think I could move into a house where I knew there were a bunch of murders. I think every time I walked into the room or in the attic, that would kind of come into my mind. And I was interested to find, you know that that most states don't have a law that says that unless the murder took place... Like within the previous year to three years, they don't have to disclaim, you know, to 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 have that disclaimer. So if you buy a house where there was a murder twenty years ago, they don't have to tell you when you're buying the house. You can do the research yourself to find out, but it's not something they have to tell you. And in fact, a lot of states, unless it was like in the previous, I think, even if it was like the previous six months, they don't have to tell you. And even then, if it was like. Uh, if, if a death happened in the house but it was not a murder they don't have to share that either hmm. so I, I, I always thought they had to but apparently they don't so um, again weird little trivia that came back as I was uh, looking at this at this you know, the history behind the Amityville horror and the fact that really nothing has happened I love the music kind of shifting gears real quick yeah, the Schifrin Mission Impossible fame it's, it's creepy music and it adds to the suspense of the film I will, I will agree with what uh, Steve said, is that the movie, you know, it, it's not as scary as it once was, mostly because I'm older, all, mostly because I've read all of the the stuff to find out, well, it's not really real. Whether you believe in that kind of stuff or not, I think when you find out that, yeah, it's all, it was all kind of faked and, and none of it really did happen... It it takes something away from the story a little bit. When they say, based on a real story, it's like, no, no, it's not really. Based on a story that was fabricated, to me it takes something a little bit away. But I like the performances. I like Margot Kidder in the movie. I think she was at her loveliest at this this point. (laughs) She really looked beautiful in this film. And uh, I like James Brolin. Although, again, I, I agree he's a little flat. I think that's the way the role was written, though. I have a theory about
2: Margot in this, Kathy Lutz. Imagine that Barb from Black Christmas lived. I believe that Kathy Lutz is a grown-up Barb. She's cleaned up her act, but there's that point where she's like, hey, you want to go grab a beer and you know sit by the lake that is something you know barb's cleaned up her act but she still enjoys a drink and that's still that you know that's part of kathy i i just eat i could see her being an older more mature
3: barb (laughs) i could see that i could see that so here's my little thing did you catch when she's washing dishes she is humming a song it's the love theme from Superman. Really? Now I didn't catch that. Did I you have know? to go. I'm going to have to go back and see that. I just read that shortly before we started recording, ah. so uh, I'm, I'm going to have to go back. I know the scene, so I'm like, okay, okay. I'm going to have to go back and see if I can hear that. Uh, might have been a little something she threw in just under the uh, just under the radar. I, I will say the film is directed by Stuart uh, Rosenberg. He did lots of TV work, some Twilight Zone, some Alfred Hitchcock, another Star Trek connection. He was uh, di- directed a lot of the episodes of The Defenders, which is William Shatner's series just before he did Incubus and Star Trek. And following this movie, uh, Rosenberg did uh, The Pope of Greenwich Village and Baker. So he had a couple of big mm. movies directly after this. Uh, I think he has since passed... I would say for me, I enjoyed the Amityville horror not as much as I used to. Uh, I agree, two hours is is, is too long. It does kind of drag on in places. I kind of want to see the 2005 film now. I, I'd never had an inkling to, because I'm, I'm just not a big fan of, of what I view as unnecessary remakes, but you brought up some good points, so I think I may... May put that on the uh, ever-growing list of films. Yeah, to watch. yeah, I'd be curious to see what you think. So,
2: a couple more things about Margot Kidder, and there is a another interview on the DVD for Amityville Horror, which I think is from MGM. And you mentioned earlier that there hasn't been a release since then, except
3: um, you can get the original DVD for like three dollars and seventy-four cents or something on Amazon, which is ridiculous. But there has been a Blu-ray release of the original trilogy. So I think that's the only way you can get the Blu-ray. It's not available individually. Uh, I thought it kind of had a high price tag. Uh, it was upwards of, like, I think $50, which seems high for a trilogy like the Amityville Horror, which... Well, which if you,
2: they would throw in Amityville Dollhouse for free, then um, oh, you that know,
3: that'd be, make it worth it. That would be, yes, that'd be the, the deal right there. But that's that's, you know, this movie... It's easy to find, but on Blu-ray you're gonna have to get the the other two films, which I'm not quite sure are worth it. I saw both of them a long, long time ago, and I don't really have an inspiration to see them again. So if that says anything. Yeah. So
2: Margot said that after Superman, her agent told her to make one for the money, and this was her first really big salary or that she could now command after having been in Superman. So, you know, she did Amityville Horror. A little reluctant, she was kind of doing it for the money. But she says, as they got into it, it she had fun. Uh, apparently, they the cast visited the real house with press, and I don't know. This was probably around the release time, and she never really bought that it happened. And I don't know if you recall when the movie came out, there were lots of stories of strange things happening on the set of the movie. I, I think I vaguely remember that, but I, I just kind of took yeah. it that it was the the marketing machine yes exactly and that's what Margot said that was just all how did she say it they
3: concocted
2: things that were happening trying to recreate that
3: exorcist vibe where there were a lot of weird things that happened on the filming of that movie and a lot of deaths and such and that makes good press right so i think coming what just five years after that five six years yeah i'm sure somebody said we got to do the same thing and, uh, yeah. yeah she did talk a little about working with james brolin she
2: compared it to like she was hip young hollywood and he was sort of stodgy old hollywood they kind of had a, a, a an approach to acting that that clashed and that was james brolin planning everything ahead of time exactly what you're going to do and she was more like just be in the moment be reactive to what was happening i, I think they worked through it but i I can kind of see that because there is there is just a little something that doesn't quite work for me. But um, you already mentioned the director thought she wasn't appropriately scared, and uh, he had to really you know push the limits to get her to react in an appropriate manner. And she says about Amityville Horror, you know, horror movies. Horror movie buffs are are savvy audiences. You know they just want to get scared and they want to have fun. She believes that that's what Amityville Horror did. There are no pretensions that it's a deep psychological movie. I have just a few notes to make about post uh, Amityville horror. For Margot
3: Kidder, did you have anything you wanted to say? Or well, I mean, Superman movies were were the big thing, right? I mean, in the eighties. I mean, she came back and did Superman too, um, and then a cameo in Superman three and then comes back in Superman four, which by that point, that franchise was limping along. I mean, the first two movies are so good. The third was a misfire by adding Richard Pryor and doing the comedy route. And the fourth film suffered from uh, a low budget and a lot of last minute editing with the nuclear man and a lot of, Odd things in the, in the editing phase of that movie that really crippled that film. She, you know, she was kind of riding on the coattails, I think, in the '80s of the Superman success. I, the only other film that I remember, and I'm sure you'll get to it, that really kind of stands out is uh, the Glitter Dome in 1984, hmm. which was a, a made for HBO film with uh, James Garner. Uh, I do. Rem- it's been a long time since I've seen that, but I remember I liked that movie. She played almost like a nymphomaniac character, if I recall correctly. I mean, she she was definitely uh, interested in in uh, in uh, James Garner. But uh, I, what, what do you have? Well, uh, in 1979,
2: so this I would say would be the peak. She had just done Superman. She just done Amityville Horror. She married actor John Hurd, and they were married for a whopping six days. Wow! Um, this was also, you know, a sign that you're at the on the top she was host of Saturday night live in 1979 in fact a couple weeks ago in uh, an episode they did a they showed the slide from when she originally hosted and you know set in memory of or, or whatever after she died um, she was married again for 2 years in 83 to 84 to a french film director named Philippe de Broca she has two grandchildren from the one daughter that she had in her first marriage Then, in in December of 1990, things started to go wrong. She was in a serious car accident that left her partially paralyzed and in a wheelchair. She became political, and that that didn't last. I mean, I think she got better, but she was controversially political in the early 90s. In fact, they called her Baghdad Betty because of her outspokenness against the first uh, Gulf War. Then, in 1992, she was diagnosed as being bipolar, and... I I've, I remember distinctly hearing about her breakdown, how, you know, she was wandering, hiding in the bushes, they found her inside somebody's house in their bed. Well, supposedly what happened is she had been working on her autobiography for three years and her computer crashed. Now, she's living in Montana and she picked up her computer, went to California to have a specialist in data recovery work to bring back her work and was unable to do so and that is supposedly what pushed her over the edge while she was then in California she had her nervous breakdown that slowed down her career for a few years but in, in 2000 she came back but now she was more into independent films and, and television all this time she was not an american citizen she still was a canadian citizen but in 2005 she did become a us citizen and One of the reasons, supposedly, is that she wanted to participate in voting in the United States for all those things she had been so outspoken about. In an interview in 2007, she claimed that she had not had another um, mental breakdown or incident for 11 years, which would have put her back to 1996. And she credits uh, her recovery, I guess, or her ongoing ability to be mentally well to orthomolecular medicine. And I meant to look up (laughs) to see exactly what that was, but um, good for it, whatever it is, if that helped her, because she came out all right. And I'm so glad that she died in her sleep. You know, I mean, she's almost someone that you could think you'd hear of being in a tragic, dramatic death. And I'm glad, you know, she went quietly. I, I didn't ever really hear how she passed just in her sleep, and that's man. That's how I want to go. Um, so yeah,
3: they, they haven't released the cause of death yet. I, I just I'm looking it up right now, and it's still not known, and, and, and apparently is still under investigation. So I would I would assume that we will we'll hear something at some point. Hopefully, it's um, I know she'd had issues, but I don't think she she returned to those uh, you know uh, drugs or whatever that she may have been some unknown medical issue, but it, it, it seemed to come on quickly, so hopefully we'll find out something at some point, and uh, it is, yeah, very, it was shocking and, and, and tragic, um, and as you look at her career, I mean, her big films were in the early part of her career, and then she just did a lot of indie work and a lot of voiceover work as well, and being kind of forgotten by mainstream Hollywood but she apparently continued to do a lot of work I mean she had a lot of films sadly I didn't recognize a lot of the titles in the last you know you know, really 20 years of her career I mean occasion she did like cameo in, in the John Candy film Delirious and a cameo in the 94 Maverick film which seems odd to me and I honestly saw both those films and don't remember her in them yeah. so I think she just kind of like a lot of actors and actresses, I mean, they have their 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 big moment, uh, and when it happens earlier in their career, you know, they continue to act for 20, 30 years in films that get seen, but aren't big blockbuster films, and and they kind of continue to work. They're paying the bills, the lights are on, food's on the table, but their their big glory days are, are behind them, and and a lot of them prefer that in the latter part. I don't know, you know. If Margo ever talked about that, you know, if she missed those days where she was a big star or if she appreciated, I, I, my gut is telling me maybe she appreciated being out of the limelight after the issues that she had and just probably was happy just to continue to work and and live a more calm and less, less mainstream lifestyle. That's just a speculation.
2: Yeah. And you said, you know, a, a period of their career where they're at a peak, you know, that, that's all you really need i mean this period was for us being horror fans and comic book fans as well you know that's all we need is like a decade of her being in these movies that we like and enjoy and to be able to watch her and you know that's great i'm i'm sad but you know god bless her and and rest in peace
10: hey rich and jeff it's jonathan um, just checking in again and eagerly anticipating the next episode of the Classic Horrors podcast. I'm super excited about your Margot Kidder, uh, focused episode. That's going to be really exciting. I think she did some great work, uh, you know, in the 1970s in the horror genre, as you guys well know. So, um, Sisters is a real classic, kind of a forgotten classic, I feel like. Uh, Brian De Palma doing some of his best work, I believe, in that film. Uh, Margot Kidder is amazing in it. I feel like it's probably the three films you guys are covering. I kind of feel like this is the one where she shows most of her range, obviously playing, you know, separate Siamese twins, one very sweet, one terrifying, <laughs> and a psychopath. But a uh, great film. I have to revisit it, actually. It's been a long time. Great Bernard Herrmann score. Um, you know, a lot of people describe it as De Palma's take on Hitchcock. Yes, definitely a great film. Black Christmas. It's interesting. I had my wife watch that. She had never seen it before. And we, uh, uh, watched it, oh god, I guess about a year or two ago. And she was expecting more of a campy, kind of fun, campy horror film. And was, and, and even though there is some camp in it, she was taken aback. And I was too the first time I saw it, I have to say with how much that film, how effective it is at getting under your skin. It's a truly creepy film. And it's also amazing to believe that Bob Clark directed that same gentleman. I'm sure you guys are going to cover this, uh, you know, the same um, the gentleman directed A Christmas Story of all films. Uh, Margot Kidder's is great in this one as well. Very different character, obviously, from Sisters. Kind of brash, plucky, kind of foul-mouthed uh, sorority sister, but she does very well in that. And then thirdly, Amityville Horror. Great film, classic, um, 1970s um, haunted house film, uh, kind of comparing to Burnt Offerings, which I know uh, Jeff is a big fan of that one. came a few years earlier, I believe. But Amityville is the kind of film we all saw on television growing up and creeped us all out, and it's still effective today. You watch that now and it's still um, still is a significant creep factor um, and Margot Kidder is great in that as well as this kind of poor, this woman who's just stuck in such a difficult spot, and, you know, the fact that they have this new house, you know, they're... You know, uh, in some financial straits, and things are just kind of falling apart around her, and she's trying to keep it together. Yeah, so Amityville Horror definitely worth checking out. If you haven't seen it, I have a feeling the majority of your fans and your listeners have uh, have seen it before. But really, excellent film. Like I said, Margo Kidder's great. Rod Steiger, who's you know obviously a kind of a legend in his own right. James Brolin is great in that film, and some smaller character actors uh, playing smaller parts that also. You know, very effective in the film. But um, I actually don't live. I live in Queens, New York, as you guys know, not far from uh, Long Island. And I have yet to be out to visit the house where that was filmed. At least the exterior, of the famous shot with the two windows that kind of look like eyes. I believe the house is still standing. Uh, I'm not sure who owns it now or what. You know what has uh, you know what state it's in. If it's something you can even. I, you know, I, I'm sure it's privately owned at this point. Um, still privately owned. I wouldn't mind getting out for a little uh, uh, iconic horror setting uh, visit with uh, with my wife. So maybe we'll do that sometime. And lastly, I was Chris Page and I were chatting uh, on Facebook a little bit. We're both commiserating. Uh, he was sorry to hear too that you guys can't make Monster Bash, but obviously understands. And uh, we all have to do our share of adulting, so. But yeah, we're <laughs> commiserating, and uh, we'll still have a good time. But we'll miss you guys. You know, hopefully, we'll all be there next year. Um, again, the show's been great. I've been actually checking out bits and pieces of your. Uh, you've been bringing back a couple of the episodes you've done. Uh, recently, I believe the brain episode with Donovan's brain and the other films, and I'm drawing a blank on the one you did before that. But anyway, that's been nice. And just keep up the great work. Show's been awesome, as usual. Really excited about the next episode. I am off to the Quad Cinemas tonight to see Revenge of Frankenstein. They're doing that Hammer retrospective, which should be great. They've got a lot of restored 35-millimeter prints, um, some in digital. But they're doing a bunch of Hammer films. So I have Movie Pass, as I think I explained to you guys offline, uh, which is amazing. You can see one movie a day, so. This is a great time, pre-baby, to, uh, to watch some Hammer in a theatrical setting, which I've never been able to do. So, and Revenge of Frankenstein is, a, you know, obviously considered a classic, one of the best of the um, Frankenstein uh, Hammer films. So, I think I've gone on long enough. Take care, guys, and we'll talk soon. Yeah. Uh, take care bye
2: guys thank you Jonathan that, that was a great summary that's why we saved that message for the end the, the way you summarize the three movies and I, I really appreciate that thanks a lot and extremely jealous about uh, the Hammer uh, Film Festival or whatever is going on I am a little curious on why it's just Revenge of Frankenstein. I think I'd be going every night to see those movies. So uh, let us know what else you see, if anything, and and what you think of them.
3: Yeah, definitely. You know, you, And your words about commiserating that we're not going to be there. We're commiserating as well. Uh, as you said, we had to adult. But you know, not only will we tell us about Monster Bash, but yeah, the Hammer Film Festival. That's, uh, I've never had the opportunity to see Hammer Film on the big screen. I, I love any chance I can see a... A classic horror movie on the big screen, and, and uh, you know, we get a chance to have that every once in a while here in Halloween time, certainly. But never a Hammer film, so uh, very, very jealous indeed.
2: Yes. And you also, you heard us say earlier. Please feel free to give us a call, leave us a message from Monster Brash, Call afterwards and give us a, an update help us feel like we were actually there and uh, i've said it before probably say it again but you know the thing i'm gonna miss most is seeing you guys again after meeting you last year and getting to hang out and spend time with you so
3: yeah hopefully we'll all be there i, I know we're gonna be there by hook or by crook next year hopefully all of you will as well yeah
2: what's the youngest uh person we saw there i think he can bring his baby next year I think so. I don't know why. Why you couldn't? I mean, still be sleeping at that point. And you gotta get them started early. You know, I mean, you can't waste a minute. You never know what's going to happen in life. You got to get them started watching horror movies.
3: And considering that the events start at nine in the morning, and, and the first couple of nights go to like three in the morning, there's a whole lot of option in there. I mean, even. Even, you know, if you got to take care of the baby, you, you can join us for the 1 o'clock a.m. movie or something. Yeah, you'll be
2: used to being up at
3: all hours at, at that time. Exactly. So.
2: Okay, well, let's go through uh, our, our normal end-of-show items here. Uh, there aren't a lot of home video releases in June, which is good. I am haven't even recovered from May yet and still need to order some things that came out last month. Night of the Lapis from 1972, that classic, classic TV movies coming out from Shout Factory on The Night of the <laughs> Leapers. <laughs> I forgot. That's you right. You challenged Andy, me to Yes. yes okay. Um, Jack, starring Do- DeForest kelly Doctor McCoy. Another Star
3: Trek reference. <laughs> I, I'm gonna shut up now. No,
2: no, that's fine. <laughs> uh, not really horror, but you know, fantasy. Uh, monster kid growing up watching movie Jack the Giant Killer from 1962, coming out on Kino Lorber Studio Classics. Curse of the cat people from 1944 from shout factory on the 26th and a movie called survive from 1976 from shout factory on the 26th don't recall what that is about but i remember looking it up and it was appropriate to include so i did <laughs> i've never heard of it now this is kind of, to me this is kind of exciting richard this is what did i say episode 19 yes so we have done enough episodes now that the birthdays and anniversaries that I'm going to mention can all be referenced to a previous episode. So I think that's kind of cool. I'm going to take that opportunity to mention those so that we can do a shameless plug for past episodes.
3: That, that sounds perfectly uh, logical and
2: plausible. I think it's there's synchronicity or something involved in Absolutely. that. Absolutely. And I do want to say, like uh, Jonathan mentioned, we are posting some of our original episodes on the new feed uh, that used to be on the Phantom Podcast Network. I- I'm calling it Remastered because, you know, everything's remastered these days. I am trying to run them through a uh, another noise reduction and leveling program before I post them because some of those first ones were kind of rough. I don't know. They may be getting so washed out now it doesn't make a difference. But when it every once in a while we'll post so that we eventually get all the episodes on the new feed.
3: You can still find them on the old feed, um, it's still out there, but uh, we eventually our goal is to have everything all in one feed, so um, you can revisit those old episodes, uh, which we did some good stuff even, yeah. we were talking about this, I was surprised at how many 70s films we did at the start of the podcast, and, and we we're doing a lot of 70s right now. Uh, and again next month. So uh, we did some, you know, classics as well. That's that's why we call it the Classic Horror Club. So go back and revisit those old episodes, as anniversaries, and and uh, Jeff is doing a good job of trying to tie in some of the old episodes to events happening now, and uh, that gives a chance for people to to revisit if you didn't catch it the first go around.
2: Yep. So birthdays in June. On June third, nineteen oh one, Maurice Evans, or is it Morris Evans? I'm not sure. From Planet of the Apes, Dr. Zaius. We talked about Planet of the Apes in episode 16.5, Classic Horrors Goes Ape. Basil Rathbone was born June 13, 1892. And we talked about him in episode 16, What's Your Story, Peter Lorre? When we talked about Tales of Terror. Speaking of Peter Laurie, we talked about him in the very same episode, and he was born June 26, 1904. And then, finally, Ray Harryhausen, born June 29, 1920. We talked about him in episode 13, when we went to Oklahoma City to the Ray Harryhausen exhibit. Anniversaries, movies that have come out in the month of June over the years. On the fourth 20 Million Miles to Earth, 1957, we talked about that again in the Harryhausen episode, June 11th, 1969, The Oblong Box. That was one of our early episodes, episode five, The Oblong Madhouse That Dripped Blood. (laughs) June 13th. Beast from 20,000 Fathoms, 1953, again Harryhausen. June 16th, or excuse me, 18th, Willard, in 1971, we talked about it on episode 6, O oh, Rats. On the 19th of June, in 1958, War of the Colossal Beast, we talked about that in episode 4, The Amazing Colossal Podcast. <laughs> I Was a Teenage Werewolf came out June 19th, 1957 we talked about that in Episode 3, How to Make a Teenage Monster. This one we haven't talked about, but it's on the agenda for a couple months from now. On June 20th in 1972, The Twilight People came out. Preemptive strike there. June 23rd, the sequel to Willard Benn came out in 1972. Not a movie, but June 27th, 1966, Our Beloved Dark Shadows premiered on TV. And we, of course, talked about that in our whole episode about Dark Shadows... And then finally, Beginning of the End came out on June 28th, 1957. We talked about that in Episode 7, Giant Insect Monster Bash. Is there anything
3: we didn't talk about?
2: <laughs> it doesn't wow, seem that's, like that's, it. That's yeah. All... See, I think that's so cool. That I mean, is this cool. Is, Maybe it's just the month, but there are so many things. I, I just think that's cool. I would agree. TV Terror Guide. Lots of stuff coming up this summer on TV. Uh, Svengulli. We have, uh, well, it's already been on. On the second was Werewolf of London from 1935. And then I'm really excited about the rest of the month. I, I would like to see every one of these. I haven't seen them in years, if I've seen them at all. Uh, June 9th, this upcoming weekend, is The Mole People from 1956. On the 16th is Man-Made Monster from 1941. June 23rd is The Nightwalker from 1964. And on June thirtieth is the leech woman from nineteen sixty so he's getting some new stuff on there. I don't think he's had before
3: um those are all repeats oh well, um, okay yeah. I haven't seen him he did do he did do the night walker, but I think that was only once and I think the leech woman i maybe that is new, but if he if he's done it I think he's only done it once so mm-hmm. uh, whereas I think some of the other universal ones he's getting back to some of the universal films that she had off for several months so uh, yeah, good lineup.
2: Uh, TCM has a couple of marathon days. Um, this month, June 18th, is Attack of the 50-Foot Woman, Wasp Woman, Wild Wild Planet, and From Hell It Came. And then on June 29th, it's uh, Peter Laurie Day for most of the day. Uh, a bunch of movies, not just horror ones, uh, but the ones we would particularly be interested in. M, Mad Love, Beast with Five Fingers. And then to top it off, in the evening of that very same day, a couple of Hammer Adventure Movies, She, and Prehistoric Women. And Comet TV has been really busy these days. I think we mentioned last time they're doing their Monster Summer. And every Sunday night is double features. Uh, Coming up on the 10th is Godzilla vs. Monster Zero and Creature of Destruction. On June 17th is Terror of Mechagodzilla and The Beast from Haunted Cave. June 24th, Godzilla vs. Mechagodzilla and Yungari, Monster from the Deep. And then on July 1st, Destroy All Monsters and Destroy All Planets. So it seems like their uh, formula there is a good, you know, Toho Giant Monster movie and then a (laughs) low-budget knockoff. (laughs) Yeah, I would agree, yeah. June 16th, just FYI, they're showing The Blob. Uh, So if you haven't seen that or want to see it again, you can on Comet TV. I do also want to mention that our friends at the Collecting Classic Monsters Uh, website, our friend George McGowan from Minneapolis, they're doing a promotion with Comet, and all you have to do, you have till June 19th to either, uh, well, to like, share, and tag um, their post about Comet TV on either Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram that automatically enters you into a contest, and they're giving away a pretty cool prize package of Comet TV Summer of Monsters merchandise, so... Head over to cl- collecting classic monsters and sign up for
3: that. I think last year Steve Sullivan won. Yeah, I remember him getting a little Godzilla, Godzilla with the T-shirt, with a Comet yeah. TV. yeah, shirt on, yeah, 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 yeah.
2: I want that badly. <laughs> I wonder what his George's connection is with Comet TV. That'd be cool if we could do that with something. <laughs> All right. Well, I think that's it. Anything personal you want to plug, Richard? Um, you know, I'm,
3: I'm doing the. Uh, sci-fi horror fest this year i did it last summer and i got sidetracked by the time july rolled around so it kind of petered out but i'm committed to doing uh i forget how many weeks i started like the third week of may and going all the way through labor day and i'm doing it with carla so we're revisiting some films that she's seen a lot of first-time films for both of us and uh, in addition to my thoughts, I'm also throwing her thoughts out there as well. I thought it'd be kind of fun to do that, and uh, since this is kind of her journey as well. So, something a little different. We're having fun with it. And that's uh, we're doing it every Friday. Beyond that, podcasting. I've had some reviews recently over at Dread Media. Uh, on the monthly Memiverse audio cast, uh, the Kansas City Crypt. And I just recorded an episode of the B Movie Cast... With uh, Nick and Mary over there, where we talk about Incubus with William Shatner. That'll be coming up uh, sometime, I believe, in the month of June. And uh, yeah, just uh, having fun this summer. Just watching a lot of movies and uh, got some good stuff and some and some bizarre stuff uh, coming up on the Sci-Fi Horror Fest. What about you? First,
2: I want to say, everyone, please, you should listen to the latest episode of the Memiverse monthly podcast. Because Richard's Kansas City Crypt is... Excellent. Uh, I mean, they always are, but the the subject matter at this particular point in time, I think, is very appropriate, and he he um, conveys it concisely and in a impactful way. It's just you you really owe it to yourself to listen to that. So, Uh, and looking forward to the B Movie Cast as well. Uh, Me, my my Friday thing that I've been posting is the Friday Fright on my blog, ClassicHorrors Club. The next one will be The Creature with the Blue Hand, which was an incredibly fun movie from the mid-60s. Also doing some writing for the the We Belong Dead magazine and the unsung horrors group richard i haven't told you this because you've been so good to support me and always buy something well i i'm buying the next one and it's the latest issue of we belong dead number 20 it hasn't come yet so i haven't even told you but cat's out of the bag now i have an article in there called the strange loves of dr jekyll and it's sort of a perspective of the different dr jekyll and mr hyde films from the the perspective of his relationship with the woman in each of those Ah. movies. So I thought it was kind of a, you know, they say, hey, will you write about Dr. Jekyll and Mr.
3: Hyde? What the hell do you say at this point, you know? I I did a month of Dr. Jekyll and Hyde movies on the Monster Movie Kid blog years ago. I'm talking like probably 2013, I think, maybe 2014. Had a lot of fun with it, and there was a lot of films that don't get talked about. So, yeah, I'm definitely interested to... read that. So I will give that to you as soon as it arrives. And then
2: the the next book they're gonna do is a, a celebration of Vincent Price like they did with the Peter Cushing. And my chore for that one is the television career of Vincent Price. So I'm watching a lot of old 50s TV right now and I am loving it. That is some fun stuff. Have you seen Vincent Price on uh, the Jack Benny Show?
3: Well, you mentioned that yeah. you've seen that. Are you posted it on Facebook? And no, I have not. And I love the old Jack Benny Show. So it is something. It is really. Funny. I I love uh, those books. Are amazing. Those 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 are so fantastic. That's a guaranteed buy for me. And Vincent Price, absolutely. I gotta ask. You're doing TV work. Are you going to be covering his 1980s? Like escapes, I think. Is, yeah, yeah, I don't. I haven't really decided. Yeah, I want to.
2: I want it to cover his career, and I'm, I'm thinking of maybe chunking it. But yeah, I'm gonna do the whole thing. And I'm inclined towards the 70s because you know I grew up seeing him on The Brady Bunch and Love Boat and all of that. I like woman. Um, yeah, yeah. So I, I'm not sure, but there's a lot of stuff to watch that I've never seen before, just to sort of get a taste. And it's interesting so far. Just the places he is in in his career with the movies he's made and the type of tv show he does and i'm not even at the point where he's gotten into horror movies yet and i just forgot or never knew what a movie star he was oh you he know? was yeah uh and yeah. that's you know we kind of focus in on that other because of you know our interests but it's fascinating i'm really enjoying that so anyway that's what i'm doing so i guess that's it did we say what we're doing next episode
3: well, we're, we're doing the Dark Shadows episode next month, and we are going to have our, our good friend uh, uh, Steve is going to be here with us talking about Night of Dark Shadows and House of Dark Shadows and his journey uh, with Dark Shadows. So that's going to be coming up for July, and I know we've got some good stuff planned for the months after that. We're talking maybe some Bela Lugosi classics, going back to some creaky old black and white classics. We've got some Dr. Moreau goodness coming up, uh, we have the It's Alive trilogy is still on the horizon, possibly before the end of the year, I believe, coming down the pike, so we've got a lot of good stuff. Next month, it's Dark Shadows, and I, I'm interested, I'm ready to talk about those films. I have I, been, I, I've di- I've been wanting to talk about those for a long time,
2: and you've made some cryptic comments that we're going to definitely have to uh, absolutely. address. Absolutely, absolutely. So we got lots of good stuff coming, we man... We're gonna hit episode twenty, and I, I think we're going strong. I'm loving this. I'm loving the participation. Oh, the other thing for next episode is I hope we have some monster bash reports. So, you know all the, all of you guys that have been calling in, let's include that in the next episode. Yeah, as Yeah, well. and
3: and a challenge too. I'll lay out there. Uh, hopefully, you're out there listening, uh, Steve Sullivan, uh, another Dark Shadows fan. Uh, call in with your comments on the movies. I know we we had some some great comments from you when we did the Dark Shadows retrospective the first time. I, we may have to I may have to lay down the challenge on on Facebook and say hey call in with some feedback and let us know so we can include you in the next episode because uh, I guess our second almost annual Dark Shadows episode. I don't, I don't know. know maybe maybe we'll make a uh, make a third annual. Dark I Shadow. love that idea. I love it. All right, Richard enjoyed
2: it as always. Everyone out there, take care and we'll see you next month.
3: Take care until next time. And as we close out, we've got uh, a song that, that I think is a perfect way to end the Margot Kidder retrospective, Can You Read My Mind, the love theme that was featured in Superman the Movie in 1978, the great uh, John Williams soundtrack. I think it's a perfect way to, to wrap up the episode. Take care. We'll be back next month.
9: What it is that you do to me. I don't know who you are. Just a friend from another star. Here I am, like a kid out of school, holding hands with a god. shivering, like a little girl, shivering. You can see right through me. Can you read my mind? Can you picture the things I'm thinking of? Wondering why you things you are. You can fly. You belong in the sky. You and I could belong to each other. If you need a friend, I'm the one to fly to.